This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control Podcast, episode number 34. My name is Eric Kimberling. Kyler Cheatham is on holiday this week, so it is just me today. And that's the bad news. The bad news is Kyler's on holiday and it's just me today. But the good news is we have a really cool episode for you today, in my opinion. Uh, What we're going to do today is we are going to uh, provide a top 10 list of the top 10 video clips or interview clips of all the interviews we've done since May of this year. And if you haven't listened to the show before, or even if you have, just as a reminder, we do this podcast every Wednesday where we release new episodes. In those episodes, we have some deep deep dive conversations with a number of different guests. And we have had some really cool guests on the show over the last few months. And uh, as the show picks up steam and gets more and more attention and more and more views and listens and that sort of thing, we get more and more interest for guests to be on the show. So it's allowed us to really bring on some really cool guests. We have some great guests planned for you the rest of the year as well. But what I thought it'd be cool to do now that summer is over in the Northern Hemisphere and a lot of organizations are returning back to reality from summer holidays and um, the stuff that goes along with, with the summer months, we thought it'd be a great time to sort of look back on the last four months since May to look at what are some of those best interviews, what are the highlights of uh, some of the best interviews we've had. So that's what we're going to do today is give you a little bit of a countdown uh, with some clips or some highlights from each of those 10 um, interviews that we thought were best to fit in the top 10. Now, the way we uh, structured this list, it's quite frankly not a science, but some of the things I took into account when developing this top 10 list were, uh, first of all, what level of engagement did we get and what level of interest did we get in that episode of the podcast that it might have appeared in? So the ones that got more views, more comments, more likes, those rated higher. And there's also the qualitative factor of just the ones I liked the best and thought were the most interesting or the most helpful to anyone going uh, through a digital transformation. So the whole idea here is that, you know, if you listen to this episode, this should give you a really good cross-section view of some diverse opinions and really interesting points of view as to to how you should manage your, your digital transformation and what some of the best practices are there. So before we jump in, I'm going to jump straight into it here in a second. Uh, Just a reminder, new episodes every Wednesday. We come out with new episodes of Transformation Ground Control. You can find us on YouTube. Um, That's where most of our listeners watch and listen. But you can also find us on uh, the other traditional podcast platforms like Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, etc. And just a real quick uh, background, if you haven't watched this show before or if you haven't been watching it for long, the name Transformation Ground Control. What that means and what it's a reference to is actually a David, David Bowie song. Uh, there's a song that came out in the early 70s, I think it was maybe the late 60s, that was called uh, Space Oddity. And it's a song about a guy named Major Tom, a fictional character, presumably, named Major Tom, who goes up into space. And it's about him trying to establish contact with ground control as he goes on his journey. 
And that's really the intent of transformation ground control is really to provide a, a sort of command center, a thought leadership knowledge base for anyone about to go through a transformation. And it's not just what I think or what the third stage team thinks. It's all the guests we bring on the show. Uh, many of them are from third stage, but even more of them are not from third stage or actually external um, clients of ours and other industry peers and just authors and that sort of thing. So a lot of good stuff we cover in this show. So today's meant to be sort of a flyover view of some of the highlight points of this podcast over the last few months. And when I look at the top 10 list here, it's a lot of really diverse uh, uh, thought leaders. We have every, everyone from authors to people that are supply chain specialists. We have someone on the top 10 list that specializes in emerging technologies like AI and robotic uh, process automation. Uh, we have a another uh, industry thought leader slash journalist type that'll be uh, on the show that we had a great interview with. We'll have an attorney on the show. We have a couple clients. Uh, we have uh, a couple high growth organizations that'll be here, a, a Fortune 500 client that'll be on the show. So a really broad cross-section of guests that span the spectrum of everything related to people, process, and technology, and digital transformation in general. So that's really the what to expect here in the top 10. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to jump in and get straight to the top 10 uh, with one last caveat that um, there are only, uh, t- I think, either two or three um, interviews that are third-stage team members. And there's a reason for that because we're going to have another episode coming up very soon that's going to actually be the best of related to some of the consulting team members we've had on the show in the past. And we've got a ton of them. So we've sort of limited the number of uh, third stage interviews that made it in this top 10 list, partially to provide some diversity to the to the voices we have uh, on the show, but also not to be too biased uh, along the way. And also knowing that we're going to have a separate episode just for uh, some of the third stage interviews we've had over the recent uh, months. So all that being said, let's jump right into the top 10. And coming in at number 10, uh, the, the number 10 interview on our top 10 list of the best interviews for the last four months, basically the summer months of 2021, was actually a author we had on the show um, in episode number 26. So if you are interested in this full interview, go back to episode number 26 and that's where you will find her. And that guest is Lippy Sarkar and she was actually the author, co-author of a book called Building a Digital Future. A Transformational Blueprint for Innovating with Microsoft Dynamics 365. And the subtitle is a bit misleading. It is about Microsoft Dynamics 365 transformations, but some of the concepts or most of the concepts, I should say, in the book are extremely relevant, whether you're implementing Microsoft or SAP, Oracle, Workday, NetSuite, whatever technology or technologies you might be implementing. It's a very relevant uh, book. So with that being said, let's cut to some of the highlights from Lippy Sarkar, who's number 10 on our top 10 list of best interviews of summer 2021. What inspired you to write this book? What what was it you were trying to accomplish? What, what motivated you? How'd you get started? So Vinny and I came together and Vinny and I both had a different kind of, very different hats in terms of our experience. So when we were talking about the digital transformation, we wanted to write a book from our experience um, and leading through, you know, different kind of implementation, different change aspects that we have gone through. And also combined with the fact that we can bring in different kind of industry leaders into, you know, uh, to contribute in terms of their experiences. Um, so that's where it started. We wanted to give back to the community. We wanted to, you know, share our experiences. And if we can just, as it happens, if you, you strike a chord with someone, somebody has gone to the similar kind of problems, 
then sharing it and we can save somebody some time in terms of you know running their own digital transformation so hence the passion started from there and um, it kind of grew into the fact that we tried to interview lots of different industry and sectors to gather their experiences their challenges um, and put together in the book great so it wasn't just necessarily just your ideas or Vinny's ideas you were also kind of compiling um, the feedback from other executives or other team members that had been through transformations in the past? Absolutely. Living by the principle, as we say, in the change, you have to have a feedback loop. So we tried to start with the book itself. We wrote the book and then we put that in the community because there are lots of different industry leaders who are actually leaving that journey. So not just me, I have done many implementation. So did Vinny, but we wanted to gather uh, the experiences and perception. Um, we are based in UK, but we wanted to gather the experiences across the world. So, and it's a culture as change, basically. So we wanted to gather all the perspectives and put that into the book. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty cool. So it's, it goes well beyond even just your own experience. It's looking at others' others' experiences as well, which is great. Uh, so I, you sort of answered this question um, a bit in in what you just said, but in general, in addition to interviewing these uh, other you know peers throughout the world and other people that had been through this sort of transformation, but how did you how did you um, identify what you would consider the best practices or the lessons that you shared? I mean, was it based on just the most common patterns or themes you saw, or was there some sort of science to it, or is it just more a, a gathering of qualitative data that you you sort of distilled down into the, the findings you have in the book? It's a great question. And in terms of best practices, obviously, uh, it depends on which country you are leading and which country you're having the digital transformation. So we try to include that perspective to say that if you have like even within the team now, it is not uh, and with digital, uh, you know, with the pandemic, you are working with team across the different countries. So, so you have to take that culture aspect. You have to understand people. So that is one element that we have taken. And in terms of best practices, I have um, been into the industry for a certain amount of time. So uh, based on the experiences that I have gathered and also combined with the fact that what would be what are the normal pitfalls that you have to come across? That's a gotcha. So what you would take into consideration while you start from the digital transformation from day one or even before day one, because you have to prepare your organization, you have to prepare your team, you have to identify where the key drivers are for the change and what are the benefits that you're delivering. So all this combined together. So I would say, yes. Um, so it's a, it's a quality of data. It's a perception based on different industry thought leaders. And while reading through the book, you would find a natural, you know, ways of the key nuggets that are takeaways from the book. So has combined all those implemented it together. Right. Right. So as you're doing this research and as you were talking to other transformation teams and trying to gather their lessons and best practices and you're combining it with your own knowledge and understanding. Were there any, um, what, what were some of the findings that you found most interesting or, or what did you learn along the way as you were writing this book that maybe you didn't already know? Uh, so one of the thing is that people have a different perspective about change. So that that's kind of given. We wanted to expand into a little bit more. I've written a chapter on uh, the chapter four covers a lot about a different kind of areas that you need to focus on one is a strategic shift where you identify the you know the key drivers then you have to focus on the 
people, uh, culture shift. We always say that the culture, uh, and this is a famous term coined by Peter Drucker, culture is strategy on breakfast. So we wanted to break it down further and also bring in the experiences of Potter from the academic perspective and also implement that from the, um, you know, the, uh, the strategic view and executing those changes. So what are the key change, uh, key elements that comes across? Um, so the best finding, I would say the change element and also the when we start the journey, the benefits realization, that is one of the key factors that is always in the business case. But whether we are tracking the benefit realization, that's another key thing that we need to focus on uh, and we need to get better on um, whether you are doing the digital transformation with the people, along with the people. But we, if we have to get moderate about understanding the and the measure measuring the business benefits, really. Right. And so that is a key finding. I find it quite often mistaken or quite often forgotten or not even polished or updated. So we have to have that feedback loop continuously to fill that gap, really. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm always fascinated by how how many organizations will spend so much time and money and heartburn on, on these transformations to get to go live. But then they don't spend that little bit of extra time to sort of optimize and fine tune and get the value out of the implementation why is that why do you think that so many organizations miss out on the benefits realization side as well as the the organizational change or the human side that, that you talked about uh from the findings i would say there are often uh, when we start the program there are often a focus around to what exactly we are targeting what we are focusing on there is a lot of energy in while we are starting but during the rigor of you know the governance and during the rigor of regular hitting the milestone it is forgotten about you know the the benefits that we need to track towards the end and how much of time it's going to take um, preparing the organization, preparing the time, because most of the time its energy is mostly focused around go live and also hitting the plan, hitting the milestone. Um, and the reason it is forgotten, it's also about the people and technology. People might be, you know, very busy with those kind of key activities that each is having major milestone driven activities. So yeah, from my perspective, I would say it's a people driven uh, something we need to do around the culture and the people mindset. That is something to be in the agenda. Maybe the, it's not in the agenda currently in the, at this point in time. Every time we talk about digital transformation it's mostly three things that comes into play is about how, what is a plan, how you're delivering, when you're delivering. And uh, also about the change uh, element and some aspect is also about when it is going live, what is the support model looks like. Uh, I think the projects finish if, because the digital transformation is seen as a project in certain cases and seen as a program, so start to finish, but uh, the benefit realization and tracking the business is mostly falls under the business element. It's not about who is delivering um, or the delivery partner. So it depends on the organization who are tracking or the team who are tracking the benefits. Right, right. It seems like, you know, with, with clients we're involved with, it seems like a lot of times you you have to your point you you have all this focus on milestones and delivery and there's so much pressure and then you get to the go live and i think everyone just sort of sighs a, a breath of uh, relief um, that they finally cross the finish line and they just want to go back to their day jobs you know to their real jobs and sort of not forget about the project but just move on and they don't stay that extra time to, to really fine-tune it and then on the change management side it also seems like the change management is the one thing you can't see or touch or feel in an implementation like this, you, you can see the software, you can see if it's broken or not working, you can see the data, you can see even the business processes, you can visualize it. But the human part is just so hard for people to grasp or understand. Did you come across any findings or lessons of, of 
you know, people that maybe handle change management better than others and what they saw differently or how they recognize the need for change management versus organizations that maybe didn't recognize that need? This is a vast subject. I mean, obviously change is such a big element. Sometimes we, it is often mistaken and sometimes it is often not given the consideration that it should have. Um, if it is a large organization, then change is obviously taken into consideration. If it is a small and medium sized uh, implementation or digital transformation, then it's mostly about saving the cost. Um, so hence, there is a balance of which we need to strike bringing the change in even if it is a small or medium. Um, and then whoever is delivering the change in aspect of, you know, after the project has been delivered, it's also about the governance, how we are playing the governance is uh, the closing the project is not about going live, setting on all the support model and then close the project to learn the program, learn the benefits, learn the you know lessons learned and all of those kind of governance things that we talk about and then finishes the project. But if you have to really track the benefits, then you have to have that kind of project live for at least for three months or six months. But sometimes we are taken into consideration that the project lifetime, what is the project lifetime that we have to decide whether it starts from the beginning and finishes when the project go live or after one month of go live, or does it still uh, stay current in terms of, you know, uh, mobilizing a small amount of team to focus on the fact that how they are tracking what is the key benefits that they are me measuring after it has gone live. Otherwise, the user adoption will never kick in, even after one year of the project gone live. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. Um, and by the way, uh, for those of you watching live on LinkedIn, we have, we have a decent turnout here on LinkedIn. Um, feel free to drop questions that you have for Lippy. Um, any, the good news is this is such a broad topic. Your book covers so much ground. We can really talk about anything we want as it relates to digital transformation, whether it's- absolutely the human side like we're talking about now we can get into technology we can get into processes program management strategy whatever the case may be um and by the way just uh, so you know lippy we have uh, a pretty global audience here uh, today just some of the a sampling of some of the um locations of some of the people listening here um obviously london and uk we have a couple people from there egypt belgium saudi arabia um and so we've got a, a pretty global audience here today and i suspect there's probably some people in the united states as well given that the time of day here so um, feel free to drop questions in the comment box uh, on whatever platform you're watching this on, and we'd love to love to get those questions. So just back to you know my list here, and I'll keep going until um, until we get uh, some questions here from the audience. But if you had to summarize, and maybe you've already alluded to some of this, but if you had to summarize some of the keys to transformation success, what would you say are sort of the top three or five things that teams really need to get right if they're going to be successful in this sort of a project? Uh, first to start with, I mean, get your drivers of change correctly, um, because you need to identify what are the change drivers, why you need to move from A to B. It, it can depend on, with pandemic, there might be a number of other factors. Um, it's either to be disrupted or to be disrupted, you have to have a plan already and then once you have identified the change drivers then where do you want to be whether it's a short time medium term or long term um then once you have identified the change once you have decided where you want to go with um have that sponsorship from leadership team i think that is also sometimes it's forgotten whether it's a bottom-up approach or whether it's a top-down so there is again need to have a balance uh, between it has to be stopped down because some of the sponsorship need to be there and also need to bottom up because we need to hear about how the change is impacting the business. So we need to have that feedback loop ready and we have to often 
go through that feedback process and if we need to change the plan if we need to you know understand where things are moving we have to have that leeway to move around um that that is one of the key thing uh, we have tried to explain that in the first part of the book about identifying defining the digital transformation sometimes it's mistaken about what it is not like it's it's not a project as i keep on saying that digital transformation has to be you know thought through from including a people process and technology then the next element is about uh, the often mistake that we have seen like people try to do or an organization try to build everything if it is decided about a one year digital transformation program people try to bring all the changes in one year of the program um, and what happens with that is that people get and the benefit uh, the organization get change fatigued so again there's supposed to be some kind there need to be some kind of balance in between bringing in all kind of changes that we are bringing in one year program and we have to build a continuous improvement towards after we have gone live after we have delivered one element of the project even if it is a very bare minimum organization teams and everyone need to get used to the system so once they have got there i think the user adoption can kick in very high but without that the user adoption uh, is really impacted Right, right. And then maybe I'll ask you the flip side of that and, and maybe the your response is similar or maybe it's different, but what what do you see as the key reasons why transformations fail? You know, of the ones of the teams that you talk to that either struggled considerably or maybe they just completely failed in their their implementations. What what are some of the key reasons why or the most common reasons why that is in your findings? I think it's a fear of change. Sometimes it's not well perceived as a change curve. You would have to have that employees and workforce working towards the transformation. Um, at the beginning, obviously, if, if the vision and the communication is not very clear, it's not very clear about what we are going to do. And then the fear can, I mean, it, it often jeopardize the, you know, the transformation program. So from, from why it fails is also the other other factors could be related to change. The change has not been properly uh, perceived through and has not been properly delivered. Um, often it's also about the processes. I mean, how many processes are we trying to streamline? Are we trying to streamline the processes or are we trying to, you know, trying to bring all the features and benefits together and try to amalgamate that in year one program? So it's, it's, it has to be a balance between everything and the work. We are also uh, try to take the balance in terms of identify the key strains and capabilities within the organization. You might be having the workforce who are perfectly capable of delivering certain areas. They have got the knowledge and experience about the processes. So involving them from day one, keeping that up to date, keeping that up to, you know, uh, with all the details and where the things are moving. Right. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know whether that that's the same experience you have, Eric, but uh, that's a finding I think uh, from from our book. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 similar. I mean, those are some good ones. The problems are the the problem is that there's so many different reasons why companies fail. But the the good news, bad news is that usually that those patterns are are predictable, even though it's a lot of things that can contribute to yeah. failure. Um, but a lot of times it seems like it, this this ties into some of what you're talking about. A lot of times I found that it's misalignment. You know, if you, if you as a team, uh, for example, a lot of the things you just described, you know, do we want incremental improvements to our processes? Are we looking to improve processes? Are we trying to build in best practices from the software? Um, that, for example, is a significant decision that significantly affects your strategy and your plan. 
But if you're not as if you as a team are not aligned on what that direction is, that creates that creates sort of a, a tension in the project, and that Absolutely. it creates a lot of headwinds that are very hard to overcome. Yeah. So I think a lot of it. I've seen the other thing I would like to say, which I missed out earlier. People try to bring in their old knowledge, but they have worked with previously. And if we don't set the guiding principles from the very beginning, uh, then there is often misalignment in terms of people bringing their own experiences of what they have worked with. All right. Great stuff. And that's just a taste of some of the things we covered in that interview, which again, if you want to see more or if you missed it the first time, go back to episode number 26 of Transformation Ground Control, you'll find Lippy Sarkar uh, was on that show. And most of these interviews, by the way, uh, go for close to an hour. You know, most of the interviews we feature here uh, today, but we're only featuring maybe 15 or 20 minutes of those, uh, each of those interviews, just some of the high points. So uh, we're going to continue with the countdown. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with number nine on our list. Uh, just to give you a little a teaser of what number nine is. Uh, it's an attorney. Uh, it's someone that you really want to have on your side if you're going through a digital transformation we're going to have a clip from him uh, when we return from for more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling doing the top 10 interviews of the summer months of 2021 on our podcast. These are the best interviews that we think were the most insightful, the most fun, the most uh, informative, and the ones that you as listeners engage with the most. These are the interviews that got the most attention, the most views, comments, likes, etc. And coming in at number nine is a frequent guest. He's been on our show, I think, three times now over the course of 33 episodes so far. And uh, his name is Marcus Harris. He's an attorney for Taft Law, and he specializes in enterprise software and enterprise technology sorts of issues, whether it's contract negotiations, um, he does litigation uh, when there's a lawsuit involving enterprise technology. And that's actually how I met him. He was actually a client and he's been a client uh, repeatedly over the years. Uh, he's hired me and our company and our team to be expert witnesses for some of his some of his engagements. So in this interview, which you can go back and find in episode number 24, you can listen to the full interview in episode number 24 of our podcast. Uh, he talks quite a bit about lawsuits and failures and some of the trends in the market and what's happening and what some of the recent developments are with lawsuits and failures. And he also touches on some of the best practices or things you can do to avoid failure in the first place. And it's a great conversation. It's always interesting to hear an attorney's point of view too, because it's just a, a different perspective and they're all about risk mitigation and whatnot. So um, that is the context of number nine. Let's cut to the interview with Marcus Harris of Taft Law coming in at number nine on our list. Maybe let's talk about just in general, you know, I've, 
I've, I'm fascinated by lawsuits as well and failures because I, not because it's fun to watch the train wrecks necessarily, but because it, you can learn so much from those, those failures and, and those challenges. And it's, it's just always some good lessons learned. And so I, I tend to watch like you, you know, when there's lawsuits and who's, who's involved and what software is involved and all that stuff. And it seems like recently there's been a few with, you know, state of Hawaii was one that, that um, I recently saw. Um, there's another one involving uh, advanced lifts versus NetSuite is another one that was recently filed. So there, some of the recent cases that we've seen have been, for example, uh, state of Hawaii had a, has a recent lawsuit that they filed. A uh, company called Advanced Lifts versus NetSuite. That's another lawsuit that's recently been filed. The reason I bring this up is, you know, I'm curious as to what you see as far as trends in the in the space of lawsuits or in the legal realm of transformation. Are you seeing more of them? Are they pretty steady? Are they declining? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, is you know, the, the state of, of Hawaii case is is a firm out of New York that I've actually co-counseled with at least on one case and. Um, the advanced lifts case is, is a, actually a firm based here in Chicago, which is where I am. And, uh, attorney, and it's one of the attorneys on that case is somebody I went to law school with. So, you know, the, the world is, is, is pretty small in this space and we kind of all, you know, are, are, are keen on what the others are doing. And, and like I said, there's not a lot of attorneys that do this. So we're all kind of watching these cases with bated breath to kind of see what the trends are. And, you know, I think back, you know, maybe five, six, seven years ago, you, you know, what would get the, the most coverage, and I think it still does, and rightly so, are these huge, just enormous failures, you know, from SAP and Oracle and, 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 and to some extent even maybe Infor, you know, some of the larger companies. And I think you saw, you saw those primarily not because they failed more, but just because of the size of the deals and they were more spectacular. And I think certainly here at the state of Hawaii is kind of a spectacular failure with $30 million in damages being recovered by the state. You know, advanced lifts, I think, is, is probably a smaller case. But as far as, as trends, I mean, I think what we're seeing is kind of down, downstream software vendors are, or, or integrators um, are, are coming to the forefront now. And, and I think, you know, they're being sued more often um, or we're hearing about them more. So certainly NetSuite is part of Oracle, but you know, the NetSuite package in and of itself isn't, isn't you know, the same level as, say, the, the main Oracle product and you're not spending as much money on it. And, I, you know, the, the trend is then, you know, these, these systems, these kind of mid-market systems or smaller systems are sold to the middle market, to small business, small, medium-sized businesses as, you know, something that's kind of a cure-all, and something that's easy to get involved in and the way they structure the contracts, they certainly make them look like that, right? It's a, you know, maybe a two page business friendly agreement that doesn't look like it's that complicated, but the way they get there is that they have the, all these internal references to other documents on URLs that can change at any time. So that's from a contract, from a contractual standpoint, that's something we see from the failure standpoint. I mean, it's really, um, to some extent, a continuation of things that we've seen before, but with maybe a little bit of a different flavor, it's, it's really, you know, a lot of these cloud-based systems not really being true cloud systems, right? They're kind of fake cloud. Um, or alternatively, they're not really ready for prime time. You know, they've got serious performance issues with, you know, whether it's the speed of the transactions that they can process. You know, there's going to be a substantive difference between a, an on-premise solution and a, and a cloud solution to, you know, misrepresentations by the sales team where they oversell the system, telling you it's scalable and endlessly customizable when in fact it's not. And then it's it's really, you know, people issues where 
the the customer doesn't put the right provisions within the contract to manage the process and you've got you know the 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 wolf garden the hen house where you know their endless hours are being spent on customizations that, that may not necessarily be appropriate you know i've got one case now where you know we, we get into the documents in these cases right and you see emails like wow so we, we had the client spend thousands of dollars on a customization that would have that they didn't need because it was in the base functionality. It just required another click. Like, what are we, you know, what are we selling? And, you know, th- those are the types of things that result in massive cost overruns and, and ultimately failures because, you know, you're outside of scope, you're outside of budget. And this thing is a behemoth that, that isn't what you contracted for. And it's a highly customized system where, you know, they, they've in fact used, you know, the project as a training ground for, you know, a revolving door of, of inexperienced consultants. So, I mean, that's that's kind of the background that 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 I'm seeing right now. The you know the general trends. Yeah, that's a that's a similar to what I've seen too, as far as the some of those misrepresentations and you know maybe taking a step further, sort of unpacking that a bit. One thing I've noticed in the space, which I find fascinating but but very unhealthy, is the fact that you get these software vendors who have. You know, in some cases, for some of these bigger vendors, they have thousands or tens of thousands of employees, right? And they're all they're all beating to the same drum. They're all delivering the same message. They're all drinking the Kool Aid, right? And they're they're talking about how great the software is and how you know it's the best thing since sliced bread. And so when you reach out to a vendor, that's the bias or the response you tend to get. And it's hard to justify or, or to argue with it because you have so many people telling you the same thing. And and yet on top of that, that not only do you have sales reps telling you one thing, but then you look to system integrators who are in cahoots with the vendors and you look to industry analysts who are getting paid by the software vendors to put out reports and magic quadrants and stuff like that. And so you look around and you say, wow, the software must be the best thing since sliced bread. Everyone's saying it is, so it must be. And so it's easy to fall into that trap and then you get into it. And then, you know, here we are, we are talking to an attorney about, you know, how we failed and we, we want to get some sort of recovery from that. Well, and I think you know, that's that's in some ways one of the industry's dirty little secrets, right, is that you don't understand as a customer coming into this. I mean, you think of the life cycle of, a, of an ERP system, of a legacy uh, on-premise system. You know, it's 15, 20, in some cases I've seen 30 years a, custom, a customer's been on that system. They don't, they don't have the experience in evaluating these systems. And, you know, you don't understand how intertwined everybody really is. You know, just to your point, you know, you've got, you know, let's let's just say NetSuite for example. You've got you know the, the sales reps who are, are selling you all the sizzle, and 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 leave out all the steak, right? And you don't, you're not concerned about it because you're going to integrators that they recommend, and they're telling you, well, this is the best system. We can integrate it quickly and efficiently. You know, we've done it many many times before for people in your industry. You you know, you go look at analysts, magic cop quadrants, and whatnot. You know, and and they're being paid to to promote the software too. I mean, you almost don't have a chance, you know what I mean? And I think, you know, one of one of the things that we always recommend that our clients do when they're doing evaluations is certainly, you know, you, you got to look at more than one system, right? And if you're trying to do this on your own, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice. As as a law firm, that's not really our specialty. We can't, we can't tell you what software is really going to be, you know, better for, for your particular business processes or not. We can look at terms and conditions of a contract, represent you in court, I think for that kind of advice, you've got to go to a specialized consultant that understands, you know, what your business processes are through some sort of a discovery process and then can fit that into, you know, these different buckets of different products because they've seen it before. 
and you know that's where so- software selection consultants, benchmarking, and that kind of thing come into play. And you know you've got to ask the right questions. Is is the selection consultant that I'm you know using are, are they objective? You know, or are they bot? Because you know if 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 they're being paid in the back door, you're not getting objective advice, and that's a big problem. It is, and you know it's it's crazy that. You know, I think that's actually the even worst part of the industry, at least with a software vendor, you, you can see why they'd be biased because they're trying to sell their software. But when you get a consultant who alleges to be independent, uh, but, you know, they have a bias either because they are getting some sort of financial kickback or what's even more common is they they just only know one or two systems because that's just where they grew up or whatever. And so it's more of a knowledge gap than anything. But I actually had a few years ago, interesting story, a, a consultant who works for, a, uh, it's actually one of our competitors. It's a, a smaller niche, you know, allegedly independent consulting firm. And they wanted a partner. And then they started talking about how they're they're going to uh, form an alliance with one of the software vendors, but still position themselves as an independent consultant. But they were going to get, um, you know, some sort of partnership referral program from uh, some of the software vendors. And I was like, the minute you start doing that, you're not un- you're not unbiased. You're, you're looking out for how I can make money in this in this deal, too. So I think that's a that's a big problem that you point out. Yeah, it's a huge problem, and I think I think you know sometimes when you go to these consultants, the the, the software package you're going to get is predetermined by the by the consultant that you pick. You know what I mean? So it, it really can be a challenge, and I think it's it's really incumbent on the customer to ask the right questions and and to to make sure they're getting the right kind of advice and to cut through this kind of veil of you know bias and, and lack of objectivity. You know, one one of the other things that that we see, and this is a common theme in in almost every failure that we that we get involved in, um, and that's really not documenting what your your key requirements are, you know, or, or not even really having understanding of what your business processes are, because by having an understanding of how you conduct your business, then you can have an understanding of what the requirements are, and you've got to make a distinction between you know what's nice to have what's what's a must have and you know just what 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 you know what what we can get rid of but you know one of the the common threads in these failures is well you know we we really needed the system to do a b and c but well you never you never even wrote it down and you never you never told in any specific documented way you never told the salespeople or the vendor that that's what you needed and then now you're surprised that it, it, you know, after implementation, it doesn't contain that piece of functionality that you think is so critical to your business. It's hard to rectify that, right? And it, it, it's hard to reconcile it, rather, because you know, if, if I got to go into court and say, well, this was the one thing that they needed that, to run their business, and the one thing that the software had to do, you know, the jury's going to say, well, where's the document that says it's so important? And that's what the vendor's going to do too. So, you know, that that's a pretty big trend that we see, and I think it's really kind of a byproduct of. Um, maybe unreasonable expectations. You, you think that the software is just going to do whatever you need it to do, right? And you're being told that too, to be fair. Um, and it's a byproduct of just the, 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 the ease with which these salespeople and these vendors kind of pitch the product, right? It's like, look, this isn't, this isn't on-premise anymore. You don't have to have a, team, a big IT team. You don't have to have software developers touching code. I mean, this is... You know, this is like Google Docs or Gmail. You know, you just plug it in and you flip a switch and it's going to work. It, it, it's not that way at all. Right. No, it's very true. And that, you know, the requirements comment is an interesting one as far as not documenting requirements. We see a lot of clients that after the fact, when they hire us to do help with the implementation in some way, 
we find that they they verbally tell the sales guy or gal that hey we need it to do a b and c but they don't write it down they don't document it and then the salesperson goes away new delivery team shows up and they end up having to repeat the same story again and then the delivery team ends up breaking the bad news that oh actually our software doesn't do that or what's even more common is yes it does it but it's gonna be super painful and awkward for it to do that or it just doesn't do it well or we're gonna have to customize it and create you know some sort of workaround for it so it's not just a yes no it's sort of a a, a gray area you've got to navigate which is how well does the software do what you need it to do right right and and actually going back to something that we mentioned a little bit before with the state of hawaii case and that was one of the key key issues in that case was was the issue of customizations right and it's 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 you know, not documenting your business requirements. And then there's the handoff between the salespeople and the consultants with their knowledge transfer meeting. And because you didn't document it, you know, the salespeople don't remember that that was a requirement. And then you do find out, oh, it, it, it can do that, but it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in customizations to get it to do that. You know, and, and the salespeople told you, don't worry about it. Our, you know, it's customizable, it's scalable, our software can do whatever you need it to do, it's that flexible, but, you know, nobody tells you, well, it's not going to do it elegantly, and it's not going to do it cheaply, and, you know, it, that that's a fundamental issue, and, and I mean, that definitely can lead yeah. to failure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we looking at the trends, or getting back to this whole concept of, of where the industry is headed, and what you're seeing from a trends perspective, uh, you know, when I first started doing expert witness work, you know, 15 years ago, it seemed like most of the cases that I got involved with were either SAP or Oracle related, because those are the two biggest vendors out there. They deal with a lot of the bigger companies that if they fail, they've got a lot more to lose and they, they have the deep pockets to sue uh, some of the vendors. So it always seemed like it was either SAP or sometimes Oracle, but mostly SAP to a second, uh, to a lesser degree Oracle. But recently or more recently, more recently, it seems like it's not just those two big products. It's you know, we mentioned, or even though NetSuite's owned by Oracle, it is a standalone product. It's a smaller, you know, smaller system, if you will. Um, and then other, you know, types of niche players. It seems like, are you seeing that to where it's not just the big guys now that are having legal issues or, or failures? Or has it always been that way? And I just didn't, never saw the full sample. No, no, I, I think what you're seeing is unique and it's it's new. And so I, I think it definitely is a trend. You're right. Back in the old days, you know, it, it definitely was the big, the big time software vendors, right? But now, I mean, we're seeing second tier and third tier software vendors, you know, subject to, to ERP failure litigation on a pretty regular basis. And I think it's actually at least even now in, in my practice, at least, where we see that on a pretty consistent basis. So I think um, that's that's something you're going to see more of as, you know, more companies think that this is easy to adopt and, and the salespeople continue to push the ease of adoption and implementation. And because one of the selling points of, of on the cloud is, look, it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be way easier to implement. And, you know, it's you don't have to configure this as much because it's a it's a multi-tenant solution and everybody gets kind of the same thing. So, you know, it's 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 super simple to do when, in fact, that's just not really the case. I mean, I don't, I don't think that you know, absent, you know, some, some certain issues that, you know, net uh, uh, cloud solutions are, are necessarily, you know, that much easier to, to, to get right than, than the old on-premise yeah. solutions were. Yeah, I agree with that. I fully agree with that. And I know I, I'm pretty sure that there's at least one person listening to this podcast right now that works for one of those software vendors that strongly disagrees <laughs> about that comment. But I think if, if you just are totally objective and you look at this, you could argue that, 
I think the only thing you could really argue is that you can turn on the system faster. I mean, I could give you immediate access, or if I'm a sales rep, I could give you immediate access to my system, right? Because it's in the cloud and I don't need to install it. But beyond that, I mean, that's that's the easy part of an implementation is getting the access to the system. Now you're talking about trying to configure it. You're trying to train people on it. You're trying to get your processes to work within it. In fact, you could argue it's even more difficult to implement cloud because now you've got to change your processes more to fit the technology because it's not quite as adaptable as on-prem. Uh, from a change management perspective, same thing. You're forcing your people to change, and that's the that's the stuff that takes time and money. It's not the the technology piece. So I think when you look at the whole big picture like that, it actually you could argue, or I could I could make an argument that it's actually more difficult to implement cloud than than on premise. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that people overlook. That look, you know, just just because it's 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 cloud, you know, it's not easier, and and, and in fact, you know, on the back end, you know, the, the change management process is going to be so much more difficult because you can't replicate the processes that were in your, your legacy system, you know, and I think, you know, certainly there's, there's salespeople listening to this or vendors. Well, that's not the point, right? That we're selling you a new system. And if you're, if your goal is to simply replicate the, the way the, the old system worked in your new system, then you, you know, you're, you're not understanding the value of the new system. And I think there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, I mean, if I've got to go on a system that, that, I can't. I can't really modify to suit my needs. I've got to change my needs, right? I've got to change the way I do business, and that's that's a tough nut to crack right there. Because I think you know one of the one of the key tenets of ERP failure is resistance to change. And if you can't get your people to buy in, you know, God help you, right? I mean, that's that's going to be a huge impediment to success. And it may not be a technical success, but but. To be honest with you, very rarely are these technical issues, right? The, the lawsuits that we deal with, it's either the, the, the reason for failure, it's not because the software doesn't work. The software works in some way, shape, or form. It does what it's supposed to do, but you know, it, it doesn't do it in the way that you need it for your business, or it was fundamentally misrepresented. Or to get to where you need it functionally, now you've got to, to, to substantively modify that code, spend hundreds of thousands on customizations, you know, and that's not that's not a solution. And that's you know, they don't they're they're never gonna lead with that. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. And you know, the other thing that drives me crazy about it, while we're talking about clouds and expectation set or cloud systems and expectation setting is when cloud providers come out and say you're gonna save money. Um, and I it reminds me of this was probably five or six years ago, I was in front of a client who was getting a, a sales pitch from one of the cloud providers. And they were talking about how you're going to save all this money. You know, here's all the ways you're going to save money. And the client actually unpacked it. And we, we walked through with the client, okay, with the vendor there. And we said, okay, well, what are you spending on hosting or your internal infrastructure now? You know, what are you spending on servers and maintenance and all that stuff? And when we added it up, it it, it actually came out to uh, be slightly more expensive for cloud. And But they kept pointing to those savings saying, but you're saving all this money over here. And we, you know, we had to point out, well, yeah, but your cost is higher. <laughs> We're just shifting the money from internal cost over to you, the vendor. It's not really saving us money. You're making more money, but we're not, we're not saving any in the long term. In fact, if you look out for most cases we're involved with, most projects, if you look out five to seven years plus, you're going to pay more for cloud just because that subscription fee never goes away. And it's a lot like, a lot like leasing a car versus buying one. It's exactly what it's like. And, no, you know, again, nobody tells you that, right? I mean, the perception is, hey, this is easy. This is less expensive. It's I'm not going to need, you know, a team of internal IT staff to manage this thing. And if it's just it's really not the case. You know, I mean, you know, it's called, you know, annual recurring revenue because, you know, their goal, the, the software vendor's goal is to sell you 
you know, on a, on a long-term contract term, you know, and lock you in so that they've got that annual recurring revenue. And the, 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 the longer the term for them, the better off they are. And, you know, I think, I think there's, there's substantive issues with that because, you know, the, the goal of these contracts really is for you as a customer get, to get all the indicia of ownership um, with respect to that software product so that you have the flexibility to work, work with it in a way that meets your needs and, and not have to, to, to work with it in a way that meets the vendor's needs. And those needs can be, you know, intellectual property needs, ownership needs, and those are legitimate. But fundamentally, above all else, it's a revenue need, right? It's a need to make money. And you know, that contract is going to be structured to give you the least amount of flexibility that you can. And I think it's even it's more prominent in, in the cloud world than it is in the, in the on-premise world. So I, I don't think that anybody that just says blindly, well, you know, it's, it's, it's cloud, so it's, it's easier to implement, it's faster to implement, and it's cheaper over the long term. It's not, right? I mean, it, there's, there's caveats and there's nuances to that. Like, I mean, I think you, you mentioned one just a little bit ago. Certainly, it's easier to turn on, right? It's easier to get access to that system. But in every other way, you know, I mean, it's kind of a wash. Yeah, yeah. We have, we have a client that we recently started working with. It's a, it's a big company. It's a global company. And they recently just implemented SAP. And, and the IT, uh, the, the CIO's comment to me was that they now, now when they look at their total IT budget, over half of their IT budget annually is going directly to SAP for the subscription licenses. And that's, that's insane. And, you know, so what they're trying to do now, and the reason they hired us is to try and untangle the footprint or, or lessen the SAP footprint and to get out of some of that um, commitment that they have every year, because it's just, it's crushing them, you know, that, that annual subscription fee. And a lot of companies just don't, they don't think ahead to, you know, what is this cost structure really going to look like when we're, when we're through this? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a huge, a huge risk and a huge liability potentially, right? It's got to be mitigated on the front end. All right. Great interview. I really enjoyed that conversation and many of you did as well, which is why it landed at number nine on our list. And by the way, if you want to listen to that full interview, go back to episode number 24 of Transformation Ground Control and you can listen to that full hour long plus interview that we had with Marcus Harris. So when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get to number eight, which is the first of, I believe, either two or three. I think it's three. First of three uh, guests here that are part of the third stage consulting team. And this uh, interview has to do with careers in general. It's not so much about uh, transformation best practices, but it's about being a consultant, life of a consultant. So those of you that are actually in the industry or have thought about being in the consulting industry or just want to know what it's like being a consultant, you're going to want to stick around for that. So we'll be back with number eight next as soon as we take a quick break. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling doing the top 10 interviews of summer 2021 on the Transformation Ground Control podcast. Um, coming in at number eight, which is where we are in the countdown, is an interview with Cameron Carpenter, who is a senior consultant at Third Stage Consulting. And had a, I had a really good discussion with him back in episode number 31. In that episode, we talked about uh, what it's like being a consultant, uh, how to adjust to consulting lifestyle, what types of people are and aren't cutting out for consulting, or are and aren't cut out for consulting, I should say. And the reason this interview is so interesting is because many of our audience members are uh, in the consulting industry, and even more of them are ones that have hired consultants or are thinking about hiring consultants. So this is just a good conversation, whether you're in the industry or thinking about hiring someone in the industry to help with your digital transformation. These are all good conversation topics. So that being said, we're going to cut to the interview with Cameron Carpenter from episode number 31 to talk about consulting careers. But I want to dive into that a little bit in terms of just understanding how, how you got into consulting. What is it that um, did it drew you to it? How did you get involved? Maybe how did you get started? So I would say I uh, got a ba- I got my degree in uh, management, the focus in entrepreneurship, and I just I just had a big interest in in entrepreneurialism and and really how businesses operate and run. I'm just it just amazes me um, what people can do and accomplish, and and I'm always intrigued at how the how they uh, they got to where they are. And so I started looking for a career, and I think what I did was I started to talk to industry leaders such as yourself. Uh, individuals like yourself, Eric, and and started to ask questions about the different career options, and and uh, I was lucky enough to to be introduced into the world of consulting, and and uh, and uh, and lucky enough to get a, a career here at Third Stage where I could jump in and, and uh, start this career path. So it's, it was a quick it was a quick uh, jump right into the industry, and it was uh, a lot to take on, but but happy I got here. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too. And in uh, you and I had uh, kind of a loose, a loose family connection, not a loose family connection, yeah. but friends of family sort of a connection. Yeah. And uh, that's when you and I first met while you were still, I can't remember if you were in college or maybe you just finished college. Um, it was the first time we had met. And then, yeah, I don't think I'd finished college yet. Um, uh, I think it was actually a few years after when I reached, I kind of just was talking with you, uh, kind of reaching out. Um, uh, I just started traveling the country after I graduated with my wife and we went, we went all over from the East to West coast. She's a travel nurse and I worked multiple different industries, mainly in the service industry and others, um, contracting work, uh, as far as residential construction, masonry, that kind of thing. So, uh, a pretty manual background before I got to where I am and, uh, happy for the networking and, and the, uh, uh, the family history there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of that that non-consulting background, that direct industry experience, you know, that gives you a different perspective than a lot of people, you know, that haven't mm-hmm. actually been you know, sort of in the, in the trenches doing some of the work that you've done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's different, right? I, uh, you know, it's, you have these, you feel that you have these, um, I don't know what you would call them, attribute to yourself or things that you know that you can do certain things, but you got to find somebody who's, who can see that aspect of you and be willing to take the chance on you. And it's very hard for young individuals coming into the consulting world, I would think, um, because they're just looking for people with certain amount of experience that just isn't always out there. And so I was just very thankful that um, that I was able to have a conversation and, and that you were open to, you know, taking on somebody and challenging them that wasn't specifically in the consulting industry to begin with. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go off script from the start. I know we've got some holistic questions we were going to start with here and I already have a question that isn't on the script, but, but that, that sort of triggered it a little bit in that, you know, when you, when you go from, uh, you know, just starting out in your career, kind of going from, from being a recent college grad into consulting, what was that, what was that adjustment like? I mean, how would you describe it? Uh, that's a little question. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you have to say to this. I mean, Everybody throws the term around, right? Drinking from the fire hose. And I don't, and even now I'm still drinking from the fire hose and it's been two and a half, three years later. So that transition was just, um, physically it was difficult because I was working at a computer more frequently and in desk type work, but the travel was nice and getting to go on site and see clients. Um, uh, so that part was challenging for me, but I think the workload, um, there's just so much information and in, things that come right at you and you just you have to pick apart it all and 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 put 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 together the dots really quickly to turn it around and and provide reasonable information back to the clients right and so uh it took i adapted quickly but it took it took a minute um to, to understand how i was going to take everything i was learning and, and use that right so that that was the challenge i would think but yeah if it's any consolation um you know, I've been doing this 25 years and I still feel like I'm drinking from the fire hose. Any, anytime we have a new client, I, I, in fact, I just flew back. We were talking before we came on the air here just a few minutes ago. And I was telling you how I, I just flew back from a client earlier today uh, in on the Eastern United States. And uh, it was just a massive amount of information. It was almost information overload, right? I felt like and um, part of it's because doing it in person, you know, is a little bit different than the zoom stuff that we've grown accustomed to in the last year and a half during the pandemic. But it's also because in consulting, it seems like you just never, you know, you never have all the answers, or at least you shouldn't have all the answers. And every business is so different. You know, every time you have a new client, it's a different um, business model, different strategy, different people, different culture, different operations. I mean, everything's so different that you've got to learn it all. It's like starting over every time you have a new client or a new product. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, good news, bad news, I guess. <laughs> It's it's good and bad. You have to. That's part of the being a consultant, though, right? That adapting quickly, yeah. and and I think we'll get to that a little bit more. But um, yeah, it's it's just that's the challenge: learning that and overcoming that, and how you can can turn that around into something useful for clients. So yeah, but. yeah, absolutely. So so based on what you're doing so far, you, first of all, when did you, how long have you been at third stage now? It's been about two years or it's been more than that, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been more because it was February ish, 2019. So I'll be, okay. I'll be at three in February total. I'm not, not keeping okay. track. Yeah, you're, a, you're an old pro, you know, two and a half years in, you know, you're becoming a pro. You're, you seem like a pro. Yeah. Uh, well, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe so, on, on selection <laughs> projects. Right. Yeah. There's a lot to learn on the implementation side, change management. There's yeah. always more, more you can learn along those lines. Um, but when you think about the last two and a half years and in the, the types of work you've done and, and the client engagements you've been involved with, what, what do you like most about it? I mean, what are the things that, that appeal to you? Well, first off, it was learning about a business from end to end. That's, it's just really cool to, to see all the different industries and, and, the different operations, some that are similar, but so much different, right? And how are they doing what they do and how do they make money? You know, it's just amazing to see see that. Um, manufacturing is the coolest side to see for me. Uh, but I think the other one too, it, 
some of the cooler things I've seen are hearing about those client stories for where, you know, it's a third, fourth generation CEO owner of the company and they started sweeping floors and then working their way up through the industry all the way up into running the business. And it's just, um, you get to hear a lot of cool stories like that. And I think that um, that's one big thing that I, I really enjoy about these projects and the work that we do is, is the diversity of clients that we have and what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what would you say, you may have alluded to this a little bit in, in, uh, in when you're talking about the adjustment or the transition from recent college grad into consulting, but what, what did you find to be the biggest challenges then? So you, you know, you talk about what you, what you like best about learning all this new stuff, but what, what are the biggest challenges been or, or the things you like least about it? Hmm. Challenges are like least about it. Um, well, I'm supposed to say that my favorite part's writing requirements, right? Uh, <laughs> document. That's the best part of it. Um, no, I'd say, um, ch what's challenging I think is, is, um, and you have to have the skill set to do it, but it's being able to adjust quickly and adapting to the client and their needs, right? You you get into, you, nothing is fully routine. I, <laughs> you might have an approach to selection or, or change management and uh, implementation, right? It's, there's generally guidelines, um, but everybody is so different that um, you have to be able to adjust and adapt to their needs. Um, whether that's providing little or less information and being concise or giving them more detail and information they need to help make good decisions. So it's the, the clients are the challenge, but that's what we do this work for, for that challenge. So yeah, I, I don't know, dislike, yeah. hard to say dislikes. I, I mean, if you get one or two clients that uh, um, are constantly questioning you, I think that's a positive, um, but that can come in line with having, you know, different sets of opinions and, and um, alignment as far as the individuals themselves and how they work well together. And it might just be a matter of the team structure and needing to adjust. Um, that can could be challenging, but it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good reminder that I think some of sometimes consultants forget that, you know, our job as consultants is to go into difficult situations. And so by nature or by definition, you're going to deal with some personality tensions and yep. pressure and stress and things that you get blamed for. You know, you, you're yes. going in to help fix the problem that client couldn't solve themselves. So you're inherently, it's going to be more, it's not going to be an easy walk in the park, especially with the type of work we do with, you know, digital transformation, business transformation, change yeah. in general, that's harder for any organization. So we end up being the, what do you call it, the recipients of the yeah. stress and pressure. And so a lot of times I always tell new consultants, especially even some veteran ones that, that forget this really important point that, you know, half of our job is to be sort of like a therapist and listen and just understand yeah. that yep. you know, Cameron's stressed out, went through change. Cameron's got, he, yep. you know, he's got a bullseye on him. If the project fails, he's going to lose his job. And, you know, he's got family yeah. pressures as well and other stuff going on. So, you know, it's, it's just relating and empathizing with what the client's going through. It's easy yeah. to take it personally and forget that's why we're there. Yes. Don't don't take things personally. You got to take yourself. You got to step yourself back and put yourself in their shoes. We just had a client and and um, I had a recent client and, and they had a failed implementation, really didn't meet their needs. They they didn't uh, assess and and look, you know, properly assess the vendors in the marketplace. Um, and there were a lot of major gaps. And 
uh, that's a lot of time and effort and energy spent that, you know, now, now working with us to come in and vet this solution, right. Or when we worked with them is, um, quest, kind of questioning the steps and, and the, what we're doing, why we're doing certain things, um, which is understandable though, because they want to make sure that they're making the right decision for their company. So, yeah. So. And it's, you know, and when you're doing a software selection, it's a big decision when you're helping manage the implementation, it's a, it's a big implementation, it's a big change. So there's a lot of just that inherently there's just, there's going to be a lot of stress in those situations and a lot of people aren't ready for that, you know, in the, in the world of consulting. Okay. Good stuff. Thanks, Cameron. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask you some more questions. We'll be right back with more on transformation ground control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Cameron Carpenter talking about the life of a consultant. So we're going to jump right back into the interview here. So, so of the work you do at Third Stage, I know you were talking about how um, a, a lot of the work you've done on clients over the last two and a half years has been focused on software evaluation selections or that digital strategy and roadmap piece of it. Um, but you're also, you know, I know you've dabbled in other areas and you've, you've continued to expand your, your skill set. Based on what you've done so far, what type of work do you like best so far and, and why? What do you like best about it? Yeah. Um, I actually, I do actually like, like specifically to the tasks that I'm typically doing. I really enjoyed the workshops, digging into the process, um, and what the clients are doing and how they're doing it and, and getting to see the operations, uh, actually physically seeing it going through usually plant tours and, and seeing how, how the job is done. I think being able to get that perspective along with running through these workshops from all these different stakeholders in the business helps to give you that true picture that you need. Um, because without that, I don't think that you can do multiple steps in the process or project and help guide and advise them uh, from either selections, change management, um, uh, implementation readiness, or even from an implementation perspective, not knowing or understanding the complexities of the company and, and uh, their needs as far as the organ, you know, moving forward in, in a very large project that's usually costly and time consuming. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point that, you know, in consulting, a lot of times, you know, you'll have different areas of focus and, you know, our, our, ten, our team tends to be a little bit more broad and cross-functional mm -hmm. in terms of not just being experts in one area, but really trying to understand the, the, the entire big picture of, of a digital transformation. But a lot of consultants will focus on one, you know, one uh, work stream or one part of a transformation, like technology, for example, you know, there's system architects or data migration experts or, 
hands-on technical configuration mm -hmm. experts, whatever the case may be, or even change management experts. You think about all these things that may seem like they don't have a lot to do with the operational side or really understanding the business needs because you're focused on the technology or the change management or whatever it is. But um, I think you have a really good point, which is you have to understand no matter what you do and where you're focused, you do have to understand how the business works or you should understand mm -hmm. how the business works and how you're going to help improve it. Uh, and I think yeah. that's another thing that consultants decide of. They, they focus too much on what the tech, the technology can or can't do, and they, they don't pay enough attention to what the client is doing. And there's some good reasons why they do the stuff they do, even if it's broken or inefficient. And, right. uh, that's an important point. And, and as an advisor, I think it's a, a cool part of the work that we do too, is, is helping to present the information for the individuals we're working with um, to make big decisions on, right? So we're here, I, I'm usually here to make someone else look really good and to help them, um, give them the information and the details they need to make the best decisions that they can for their, their organization. So I think that's very enjoyable. It's very fun to work with all the different leaders in the, in the industry. And I think that's, that's a big part of the work that we do. The work is, is I've gotten to work with top leaders, executives, um, CEOs, C-level suite, and um, have gotten a completely different perspective that I probably wouldn't have gotten going elsewhere, working, starting off, you know, in a different uh, career field. Okay, that was number eight on our list of top 10 interviews in summer 2021. And uh, that's actually, honestly, an interview I wish I would have heard back when I was starting my career because I think he has a lot of really good insights as to what to expect in consulting and how to make the adjustment to consulting and, and just how to know uh, whether or not it's a good fit for you. So uh, Cameron Carpenter at number eight on our top 10 list of interviews, you can find him uh, the full interview back in episode number 31. Now, when we come back uh, from a quick break, we're going to have a guest who's going to be on, or we'll feature a guest who was on and spoke about change management. And this is the first of a couple different interviews that refer directly to organizational change management. So we're going to take a quick break and get to number seven when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control in the top 10 interviews of summer 2021. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm Eric Kimberling here going through the top 10 list of the best interviews of summer 2021 on Transformation Ground Control. And coming in at number seven is Teresa Richardson. And she is someone that was on our show back in episode number 29. She's someone I had a chance to sit down with for, for close to an hour to talk about organizational change management and the basics of organizational change management. 
Uh, we've had a lot of guests on the show that have gone really deep into change management, talked about different uh, aspects of change. But I like this interview because we really try to keep it sort of broad and high level and uh, sort of a summary view of what change management is and how it applies to a digital transformation. And our intent here was to do an interview that could appeal to people that maybe know very little about change management or maybe you're an executive or someone high up on, in an organization going through a transformation and you just need to know how you know how important is change and how would it apply to my initiative. So that was the intent or the backdrop of why we had Teresa on the show in addition to the fact that she's very knowledgeable and she's not only a change management consultant, but she's also a Lean Six Sigma practitioner, which makes for a very powerful combination and skill set. So here is a clip from number seven on our top 10 list, the interview with Teresa Richardson back from episode number 29. Just for the average person that might be listening that doesn't really know what change management is, they've heard the term, maybe they know it's important, but what in the world does change management mean? How would you, how would you sort of simplify it, dumb it down, however you want to describe it, just for the person that doesn't know much about change management? Well, what I will say uh, is, I will say what it is not. It is not fuzzy bunnies and rainbows and kittens, okay? That is that is not it. Um, to me, it's a systematic uh, approach that deals with technology processes as well as people. So we have tools and techniques that really address the, the process and technology, but also the people side of change. It's very important to understand that whatever initiative you're doing, people will be involved and you need to understand how these impacts uh, affect them, what are their stressors, uh, be able to identify resistance uh, points so you can create plans and actionable items to address those and, and really help people along the way to not only embrace it and accept it, but own it in a nutshell. <laughs> I love how you stated what it's not, because I think that's, even though that's not what I asked, I, I think it's perfect description because that I, I agree that a lot of, especially at the executive level, you find that people think that, oh, it's just a kumbaya session mm -hmm. or a, a way to make people feel good. Maybe it has that unintended uh, benefit, but the real benefit is to really transform the business, deliver value, you know, more tangible results. Yeah. And also when, when people who hear change management, um, traditionally, they think change management, uh, steering committees, things like that, where you get a group of people together that make decisions on a process or technology change. It's not really addressing the people side of change. Um, I had an interesting conversation today with uh, a potential sponsor and through our conversation uh, and dialogue, it was uh, I was painfully aware what he thought change management was in his traditional role versus what we were trying to accomplish. Um, so again, having the skill set of identifying those nonverbal cues, change in and inflection, even the way they're answering questions kind of led me down the path to get an understanding of where he was really at in terms of understanding his role as sponsor. Hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, so we've talked a little bit about at a high level what change management is what it's not. Um, why is it, why is it so important? It sounds like a no brainer question, but, but I think it's a really important question. Yep. <laughs> so this is another favorite question of mine. So whenever I'm talking to a client or a team, um, I ask them, you know, to tell me about your process. Is your process 99.9% .9 automated? And nine times out of 10, they tell me no. 
Well, if there is a people factor in your process or technology change, you cannot ignore that. So it's very, very important to get the understanding that we are impacting the, the, the way people do their jobs, their, their daily lives between nine to five or whatever. So you have to be able to understand where they're at in their understanding, how to communicate the changes, how to identify potential resistors and be able to mitigate that and, and, and create a change team that can address those when you're not around as a change management professional. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And, and, uh, one thing that, that I found in, uh, that sort of validates what you're saying, the importance of change management is that in, in any time we're hired to go do a project recovery and sort of clean up a failed project, or when we're hired as an expert witness to provide an opinion on why a project failed, it almost always comes back to change management. There's some heavy change management failure that led the problem. It's usually not because the technology didn't work or even that the right. processes didn't work it's because the people side of the equation wasn't addressed well. And, and honestly, I am a firm believer that people don't come to work to want to do a bad job. They come to work to be productive, to be part of something, to be part of a solution. And if you miss that opportunity to bring your team into the fold, to have those conversations, uh, it can impact the success of what you're doing. So, you know, when you have people who actually touch the process and they're the closest, they have the most valuable information. It's really easy to, you know, configure something or draw something. But until you're understanding how that is impacting the people who are actually using it, you're going to miss a big opportunity. So you should probably get into the change management mindset early on to create that wealth of knowledge you can use to mitigate any any you know resistors or issues you have moving forward it's better to do it up front than to do midpoint or after because then you've created another issue right right yeah yeah and it just taking that one step further it's i think it's important to think of change management as something that's on your critical path you know yes. the, the ultimate time and cost of your transformation is going to be largely determined by how well you address change management. And while it may seem like a net investment or a, uh, a net cost, it really isn't. I mean, it's actually going to save you time and money by handling change management well. Um, Absolutely. So that's an important point. Okay, Teresa, thanks for that. We're going to come back. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break and we'll ask you some more questions as soon as we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, and we are here talking to 
Teresa Richardson about organizational change management. So let's pick up where we left off before the break. I guess a, a follow-up question to to why change is so important. You know, why is it so hard? Why do, why do so many organizations struggle with change in general, especially as it relates to the human component? I honestly think that, and again, I believe people don't come to work wanting to do a bad job. I just think that the education, the awareness of what it really is, isn't there. So um, even the conversation I had today with, with a client, um, he came from Michigan. He understood, you know, manufacturing and, and the importance of getting in early, making sure these changes are identified and we have plans to do them. But a senior level management wasn't as passionate as he is at this point to address those issues. So getting the awareness of what change management is and how to implement, when to implement, and the best mitigators around the problem that, that we can come up with is, is why I feel people don't engage soon enough. It's, it's when you have the initiative rolling of process and technology and things aren't really moving to where they need to go and they ask why. Why is this happening? And then at that point, yes, we come in and we help, but it would have saved to your to your point time, money, resources had we gotten in earlier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it, and the other thing that that does that approach that you're advocating of of getting in earlier and addressing change management earlier is you get to see how big the bread box is. You know how much of a change or an impact is this really going to have? I think a lot of times companies think well. Let's just wait until we get closer to go live and we think about training and yep. doing some of that downstream stuff, but they don't, but by then you've already walked into a mess of organizational challenges and pitfalls and risks. Especially if you're uh, merging cultures. So, you know, you, you think that, okay, we have the best culture, but guess what? Those two other merger companies think they have the best culture. They have the best processes. So right from the onset, in, even in planning phase, you have a mindset that goes against what you're trying to create, which is one cohesive organization. So if you're only looking at the nuts and bolts and the process steps and trying to figure out, you know, which op which you need to follow as a as an organization, you miss all of those nonverbal cues, the, those unspoken attitudes and perceptions that once you do creates a process or technology that you're going to have to address. You have to address it. Unless again, your process is 99.99% automated, people are involved and you need to address the people factor. So it, you just can't get around it. Or, or you're gonna pay now or pay later, right? So pick your poison, right? Yeah. Well, let me take, let me play devil's advocate. I'm gonna talk about a process that I might automate 99.99% and you can tell me if there's a change impact here or not, but let's just say I'm using, uh, you know, artificial intelligence or robotic process automation, you know, one of these really cool technologies that are, you know, offered as a standalone or that are integrated within, you know, enterprise technologies of different sorts, um, game changing stuff that could totally streamline a process or an operations. Um, does that mean that change management won't be important in that case or, or how would change, if so, if, if it is going to be important, how would change management fit into that, something like that? So I guess, let me ask you a question. So you have a process that's evolved to 
become more efficient, more automated, et cetera, right? So you've grown to a level. Now you need less people, but you're going to need people. So when you're trying to get to that next level of generation or growth, it's not going to happen automatically. You're still going to have people involved. You're still going to need to understand, you know, what were the barriers? What were the, the problems? You know, what are the, the best opportunities, the best practice, et cetera? What are the results? How do you interpret the results? Are the, do these results make sense to the people involved? So there's still a component of people if you want to continue growing in your practice. Now, if you don't and you just want to level and, you know, stay there stagnant forever, I would say, you know, maybe you're going to have to figure out is the button to push by the human in the right place every time. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but, right. I mean, so I liken change management to dinosaurs, right? If you don't change, you're going to end up dying out. If you don't evolve, you, you got to keep moving. In, in business today, it's so quick and, it, and the speed is, is mind-blowing sometimes. And if you're not capturing that the change in the people uh, process, technology, you're going to miss out. So our markets are driven by competition. You have to have a competitive edge. And honestly, from what I've seen, the competitive edge is our people. We have to give them the respect and the due diligence to understand how can we not only make our process and technology better, but how can we make our people better? How can we involve them? How can we grow ownership, accountability? Because they're the ones at the end of the day that produce the results. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I, I can't think, I can't remember how long I've been hearing the same comment from executives and project teams of, well, you know, we've got this change or this new technology, a process improvement that's going to allow people to do less manual work and focus more on the strategic aspects of their job. Mm -hmm. And it sounds good in theory. And maybe you, you plug in a number in your business case that somehow quantifies that. But what does that mean? You know, if I'm, right. a, if I'm, I'm an employee and you're bringing in artificial intelligence or any sort of technology to automate what I'm doing and you're taking away some of my manual work that's low value, what does that mean for my job? Am I going to, exactly. what, what, what am I going to fill my time with if I'm not spending half my time doing manual stuff or whatever the case may be? So and that's again, a really good point. I think through, through the evolution of growth, you know, we're taking to your example, people who are engaged in manual work and now you want to elevate them to more strategic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's still going to assist your AI. It's still going to help your growth. But if you're not addressing the changes, even in their roles and responsibilities, you know, you have changes in reporting structure, changes in tools that you're using. They're going from manual to this. And what does that mean? And how do I connect to my new position? In my experience, most resistance comes from a place of not understanding what the change is, why are we doing it, and how is it impacting me? Once we address that, the ownership and accountability grows. And I've seen teams that have exploded. And I'm like, you know, that mama bird looking at her little birdies flying out and being all successful. It's the best feeling. I'm telling you, it's, it's amazing. And it just took someone to identify those opportunities, put a plan together and work through it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what are some <laughs> of the biggest pitfalls or change pitfalls you see from a, from a change management perspective, typically when you're working with, with our different clients? Um, so the first would be the time of inclusion of change management. So when, when do we get to be part of the conversation? Um, 
traditionally it's been midpoint or end, like a handoff type thing, which again, we, we discussed earlier, that's a huge opportunity missed, right? And if we are lucky enough to get in at the ground level, right, to help build the foundation, because what happens when you build a foundation on sand, it kind of shifts, but you know, change management can help build a solid foundation. Um, the understanding of what change management is, an understanding of what the roles and responsibilities are from a change management perspective, in my opinion, is the next biggest opportunity. All right. That was number seven on our top 10 list of the best interviews of summer 2021 on the Transformation Ground Control podcast. Uh, great discussion about change management. And honestly, there's nothing more important for you to know or for any of us to understand about a digital transformation than organizational change. So that's a great discussion and stick around to the end of this top 10 list or toward the end, you're going to hear a couple more interviews that are directly related to change management. So coming up uh, after a break, we're going to get to number six on the list. Who's a industry thought leader, journalist, blogger. He's been around for a long time. Someone I've known in the industry, probably for, I'd say close to 20 years now, uh, maybe 15 years, whatever it is, but it's been a long time. And someone I have a high degree of respect for and thought it would only be fitting that I have him on the show. So I'll tell you in a second who it is. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Coming up at number six on our top 10 list of the best interviews of summer 2021 on our podcast so far. And this guest at number six, uh, really like, he's uh, a couple of reasons why I like him. Not only is he a super smart guy, not only has he been in this space for a long time, and he's definitely an influencer in the digital transformation and software space, but he's also uh, entertaining to talk to. I always enjoy talking to him. I laugh multiple times during conversations with him. And part of it is because he combines his knowledge and understanding and experience with a, a healthy dose of cynicism or skepticism. And I always admire that about, about people in this space because there's way too much blind optimism and uh, smoke and mirrors, in my opinion, in this space. So I always enjoy talking to him. And this guest is John Reed, and he is one of the founders and one of the key contributors at Diginomica, uh, which is a website. If you go to diginomica.com, which is spelled D-I-G-I-N-O-M-I-C-A.com, they put out tons of great content, um, very you know hard hitting content. It's not uh, smoke and mirrors. It's not vendor spin. It's not fluff. It's it's very practical, pragmatic stuff. So we had John on the show to talk about some of the overhyped digital trends. Was one of the things we talked about. We actually talked about a lot of different stuff. But there's a clip in particular I'm going to play for you where we talked about some of the overhyped digital trends and things just to be leery of and just sort of take with a healthy dose of skepticism 
if you're thinking about these sorts of technologies for your organization. So with all that being said, let's dive into this clip from number six on our list, which is John Reed from Diginomica. That's how a lot of my interaction exposure to your your thought leadership has been through Diginomica, uh, which you're co-founder of, and also uh, Enterprise Irregulars. Is a, I think that's where I originally uh, first started interacting with you or, or sort of following you yeah. as a thought leader in the space. Um, so tell us, maybe just tell us a little bit about Diginomica for those that don't know, and, and maybe it will help for those that don't know how to spell it and how to find it, but it's D-I-G-I, or I'm sorry, D-I-G-I-N-O-M-I-C-A, so diginomica.com. And, and just to preface it, for those that don't know, it's a really good, um, I would consider a very good agnostic and pragmatic source for enterprise technology transformation type stuff. I mean, you're, you know, you're, it's very easy to follow. It's very unbiased. Um, and like I said, very practical. You're not sort of up in the clouds uh, like a lot of analysts are speaking foreign languages that don't apply to everyday uh, realities. But maybe tell us a little bit, little bit about Diginomica. Why'd you start it? What's the goal of the of what is it, first of all, and why'd you start it? A couple different reasons. Uh, we started it because we felt that most tech industry um, publications are pretty crap and pretty not in it, enterprise focused as well. And we felt there was a need to provide um, context to enterprise news. Um, but one of the big things, like the user experience on all the big tech sites is just so terrible. Autoplay videos, pop-ups everywhere, advertising game chasing eyeballs, chasing viral stories. We wanted to build a business model that was centered more around providing real practical advice that enterprise customers and people that have a stake in the enterprise can use. And um, a big focus of, of Diginomica has been, you know, from the beginning, but really became this notion of, of transformation in the enterprise. And, you know, we're, we're advocates of transformation, but not in the way that vendors sell it. We're advocates of it in the in the sense that we think that there's a success to be had on the other side of, of the pursuit of transformation in a corporate context, but it's not just technology, it's culture, it's process, it's people, it's everything. And there's a lot of very good reasons for that. Uh, I think uh, people are more and more receptive to that message, obviously. The last year and a half certainly helps uh, in that regard, though it's obviously been a tragic circumstance, so it's not something we wanted to happen. But but there is that sense in which, like, um, you know, we, we do need to do business differently if we want to stay agile enough to compete. And so, so we really look at that from a large enterprise perspective primarily. And, and that's sort of driven our publication um, since, since we started. Right. Yeah. And you guys just put out, you know, massive amounts of content. You cover so much, so many different nooks and crannies of, of the enterprise space. I'm always fascinated by how much you guys, you know, it's, it's not just SAP or Oracle or Microsoft. You're kind of, you're covering the whole spectrum of all types of technologies and implementation, best practices and lessons. And, um, and just keep, I, I read it a lot of times just to keep up to date on what's going on, you know, who bought, you know, what vendor acquired what software and, you know, what's going on with some of the vendors. You guys are really good at covering more of the newsworthy type stuff too, in addition to the, the more opinionated type stuff. Yeah. And, you know, part, part of our goal is that there's so much noise around stuff. And so we want people to be like, well, if I read just one article to really understand what this news means, then maybe it would be an article from us or we can try to provide some context to that. And that's always the goal. Look, we don't always succeed. I mean, not every article that we publish is brilliant, but 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 we do try to focus on people who are very experienced and understand the enterprise and, and aren't afraid to take a position. Most of our articles, aside from customer stories, which we do quite a bit of as well, most of our articles have a take where we were the writer takes a position at the end of the article on what 
what what they're seeing. And we think that's important to put a stake in as far as what does this mean and what do I think this is a good or bad move and why. Um, we don't pretend to be above the fray. Uh, if you look at our site, we are we are uh, our partners include a lo- number of vendors, and some of them we we cover their information. Um, we're rigorous about disclosure. We we think that transparency and and how you're funded is a really really big part of things, and so that's a key. Every one of our blog posts has relevant disclosures in it when we do have any vendors that are involved that we do business with, and so. Um, you know, we don't pretend to be like better than the business. I mean, everyone in this business is getting paid by someone, but we do try to um, rise above that and also, you know, have strong words even for those that we uh, we do business with. And one thing we tell vendors we work with is that we're still going to criticize you and we're still going to raise points and issues that we think you need to think about because, you know, um, the other thing that is just really important, and this is something that I believe, I think Digonomica as a group believes this too, but this is something I believe very strongly is that not enough pr- enterprise projects get across the finish line in a way that we could call successful. I mean, you, you, uh, you've been an expert witness in a lot of situations, so you know how, how wrong these, these products can go when they really go wrong. But I find most projects are actually fairly mediocre and, and don't achieve a lot of the promised benefits. And I think everyone in this industry has a collective responsibility to change that. And so that is a driving focus. Um, but I also think that humor is important too. So if you want to get a flavor for that, I would recommend starting with my weekly enterprise hits and misses column, which is really me at my most unbridled that comes out every Monday morning. And that's me taking snarky shots at things, but also trying to put the week's enterprise news in, in context. Yeah. Every, every time, uh, every time I see that you've tagged me in one of those, and, and I know you've covered something I've written, I always, I, I have a moment of flattery, but then I have a moment of fear of like, is What's he going to say though? It might be, it might be positive. He might be saying he agrees with me, but there's times where he puts stuff out and you're like, Hey, yeah, here's an interesting tape. Totally disagree. Here's what I think, you know, which I appreciate. I, yeah. I, I like how you, you're not afraid to sort of either build on a topic or challenge it or, you know, provide a, a different perspective. And I, that's why I enjoy reading your stuff. And for those on the live stream here, if you haven't checked out Diginomic, it really is a good source. I mean, it's uh, like I said, newsworthy, uh, very good opinions. And every article I read from you, there's at least two to three times throughout the read that I will laugh out loud at some of the stuff, <laughs> some of the stuff you say, because some of it is just so honest that it's funny in a way. It's like, I can't believe he's actually saying that. It's absolutely true, but I can't believe he's saying it. Or it's just flat out humor that you're using. Uh, so you have a very unique uh, writing style that I, that I enjoy. So I think others here on the live stream would probably appreciate it too. Um, so you cover a lot of stuff. You, you, you know, you see a lot of, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of vendors, a lot of trends in the market. What are, you know, if you just step back and, look at all the stuff you're covering right now, you know, what gets you most excited about the the space right now? Is there anything that just kind of pops out of you? It's like, Hey, this is a really big deal or maybe a hidden gem of a, a trend or something that's happening out there that the rest mm. of us aren't really paying attention to. Or what, what are some of those things that excite you that's happening out there? Well, I'm excited by two things. One is kind of classic and one is kind of like more new stuff. I mean, the thing that ex- excites me in a classic sense is conversations like we're having today where, where we can be very informal and like honest about what's really happening in the enterprise. And, and I never get tired of that. Like I whether it's a dinner at a trade show or, or if you get lucky enough to go to an online event where there actually is a forum for that. Um, I think like people putting heads together and like genuinely sharing their experiences and trying to solve problems. Like to me that, that never gets old, but as far as like trends are concerned, I'm, I'm a little, uh uh grouchy with a lot of trend stuff because like when you've been around for a long time you see like uh you know 
I always want to know how is this thing different than the last thing? So in other words, like digital transformation, one of my first questions on that was like, I challenge anyone who used that phrase to tell me why it's different than change management because we're using that phrase. Now we're using this new phrase. So why is that different? Um, same thing with AI ops, for example. Okay, that sounds cool, new and different. Well, how is that different than just workflow automation, for example? Um, so all of that stuff like, like um, really bothers me. And so I'm not like, a futurist, which is kind of what you and I were talking about before, is like, I don't like to get tagged by that label because I get really irritated by, you know, for example, uh, so many people got burned by blockchain and spent so much money on blockchain that I don't think they're ever going to see ROI on. Not that it, will, it won't eventually mature and have use cases, but it's just one thing. I don't like fanning the hype of stuff. But having said that, I do like what modern enterprise technology is shaping up as because I do think the technology is getting better. And and I think that reinforces some very interesting things. Like, for example, this year, I've done a couple of stories where you call it low-code ERP if you want. Low-code doesn't really matter that much as a buzzword. But the idea is basically putting power in the hands of business users to basically automate their own workflows and do stuff without having to go through IT. And, and the same thing goes with things like reporting and analytics where there used to be all these IT bottlenecks around all of this type of stuff. And, and, and these days you simply can't afford to wait till the end of the month or the year to get certain kinds of reports or data or to, or to build like a new little app or something. And the more I see business users being able to take that power in their own hands, the more excited I get about where enterprise software could ultimately wind up as because so far it really hasn't gotten there as much as the marketing folks would have you believe. But that's what kind of gets me excited is seeing business users truly engaged. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting in, in use or taking the power back almost, you know, taking the power back from IT and, and also taking the power back from uh, consultants or system integrators. I mean, because a lot of times these companies, they get so dependent on the big SIs or outside consultants that they can't function without them because they, they just have this black hole of lack of knowledge that the SI or the consultants have, but now we're kind of shifting that to make it to where you don't necessarily need that level of outside support. I totally agree. And and, and in case people think I'm kind of like criticizing I, IT and and kind of and, and casting a negative light on IT, I'm not at all. In fact, I think I just did a use case about a, a CIO who is really looks like he's really going to be able to deliver for the business and the medical industry with with their vision of more connected care for patients, which is a really good thing for everyone. And, and, and this CIO is getting much more engaged with business outcomes because he feels he has the technology to deliver on that. And like, to me, I actually get depressed when I run into companies that don't have any IT. Now, granted, there are some startups that have a cloud first thing and they got to move fast. They don't want to build IT, but in general, I like IT as a differentiator. I like the idea of, of people in IT working on differentiated projects, embedding uh, their their technology into smart devices or, or, or building customer-facing apps or doing really cool stuff that impacts their business. I, I love that vision of IT. I just don't like the vision of IT as like, and of course, security and compliance, all that stuff matters also. But I just don't like that vision of IT as like the bottleneck that prevents business users from getting things done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also, you know, forces the business users to connect the dots between the technolo technological needs and what those business needs are. Totally. And they're, they're best equipped to do that for sure. Well, 
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. What about, um, maybe let, let me go the opposite direction of what I just asked you and talk about what are those trends or buzzwords that you think right now are, are the most overhyped or that an enterprise technology buyer should be the most leery of? I know you mentioned blockchain a little bit, but what, what are some of your thoughts there? Uh, well, I mean, a lot of these buzzwords do represent topics that are worth reckoning with. It's just you have to be wary about immediately opening up your wallet and feeling like you can't be successful without it. Um, one that gets a lot of debate right now is customer data platforms. That's huge on the, on the CX side. Um, and so the question then becomes like, is this new and different than the, than the data integration activities we've undertaken in the past? Um, you know, and, and so you need to really take a hard look at that and we'll, will we get a better result like um you know integrating all your customer data sounds wonderful but then think about well what about our finance data and what about the rest of our corporate data that we may need visibility into our supply chain data how can you serve customers if you don't have visibility into your supply chain so these 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 acronyms like cdp you have to be really really careful when event when vendors start glomming onto that because they're doing it partially because they're going to sell sell a bunch of stuff to you um, you know, I think we have to be really careful with AI. Um, there's all kinds of problems with AI. Um, a lot of AI tools ship uh, in problematic ways that perhaps include um, biases. We see that a ton in HR. You do a search on AR, AI recruitment controversy and you'll find all kinds of stuff around companies that tried AI tools for recruiting and found that they were actually screening qualified applicants or not including diverse applicants for various reasons. So there's there's always an underbelly to these technologies. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means they deserve a, a close uh, close look. So I, I don't know that I would say any of them. I mean, blockchain is a little bit of a special case because it was so hyped when there were just no use cases. And I'm still waiting to do my first live production scale enterprise blockchain story. <laughs> I keep right. telling vendors, like, please send me your 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 live production story. Nope, but we've got this great POC, which is proof of concept. Um, well, we've been doing POCs in blockchain now for five or six years. Um, and so that, you know, that's that's obviously technology that I get a little particularly wary of just because, you know, the, the use cases aren't there yet. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I think uh, I agree with you, by the way. I think there's so many cool technologies out there and blockchain is one of them, but you, you have to take it all with a grain of salt and recognize that even if you do commit to a certain technology, whether it's a, a type of technology or even a certain vendor or, or a certain specific uh, software solution, there's always an underbelly to it, like you said. And I think that's true for any any solution out there, for sure. 
All right, great discussion, and uh, be sure to go check out episode number 21 for that full interview clip because we talk about a lot of really good stuff in that discussion beyond what you just heard. Um, that was definitely a high point, but there's other high points that, uh, quite frankly, I didn't have time to fit it all in this uh, condensed summary version of that discussion. But be sure to check out number six. That's uh, John Reed from Diginomico. Now, we're about to break into the top five, and when we come back from a quick break, uh, this is the uh, first uh, first of the interviews on our top 10 list that is actually a client of ours of, of third stage and a uh, really interesting conversation with a large organization, uh, very unique culture, very innovative organization, one that many have heard of, um, many of you listening have heard of, and uh, I'll leave it at that and we'll tell you who it is when we come back from a quick break on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. We're here doing the top 10 countdown of the best interviews of summer 2021 on our podcast so far. And for new episodes, you can find new episodes every Wednesday where you come out live on YouTube on Wednesdays. Our weekly episodes are also dropped on podcast-only platforms on Wednesdays as well. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever you might be listening to podcasts, or if you want to watch it, you can watch it on YouTube as well. And by the way, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Subscribe to the channel, uh, subscribe to the uh, podcast if you're listening on the audio platforms, and drop us a review. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode as well as other episodes you might listen to. I'd love to hear if you agree or disagree with what we have in the top 10 here or anything that stands out as particularly insightful. Be sure to drop a comment uh, wherever you're listening or watching. We'd love to hear your feedback. So we're at number five on our countdown here. So we're breaking into the top half of the top 10 list here. And this one is a, a, a guy I love talking to, whether it's a formal interview like the one we're about to play for you, or whether it's in client conversations, which which I've had many of them with him over the years. And this is uh, Dan Krug from a company called Newcore Steel, which is North America's largest steel producer. And it's a company I've been working with and our team has been working with for several years now. Uh, very interesting company that has a, a high degree of innovation. They're actually an organization that a lot of academics will study for their innovative practices and just their high growth over the years since they were founded back in the 60s. And they really disrupted a very mature and I would call it a stale industry in the steel industry back in the, I think it was the 70s and 80s. They, they completely disrupted the business and the entire industry. And they quickly became North America's uh, largest steel producer after a time when the U.S. steel producers were really struggling. They were, they were getting beat by 
uh, Japanese steel companies and other global players throughout the world. And uh, since then, they've they've emerged as one of the leaders in the space. So when we uh, talked to Dan here, we talked about a lot of different stuff, but we talked quite a bit about innovation and culture. And that's some of the high points I'll play for you, for you now. And uh, here's number five on our list from episode number 19, Dan Crew from Newcore Steel. All right, just tell us a little bit about Newcore Steel, and then I'll ask you a little bit more about your role, just for people that may not know who Newcore is. Sure. Yeah, Newcore is the largest producer of steel and steel products in North America. So uh, any end market that steel would go into, our, our steel finds its way into. We're very diversified. So whether it's a, a car, a bridge, a building, furniture, hot water heater, an appliance, um, uh, if it's a, an end market that consumes steel, we're, we're likely in it. Um, one of the other things that we always like to mention when we talk about ourselves is that we're North America's largest recycler as well. So oftentimes when people think of the steel industry, they think of big blast furnaces and uh, miles and miles of, of rolling mills, and that, that's not us. Um, we run electric arc furnaces, which about 80% of the material that we melt is recycled steel. Um, uh, and uh, we recycle over 20 million uh, tons of steel each year that would otherwise likely go into a landfill. So um, given the world of sustainability that we live in, we're, we're particularly proud of that. Um, we've uh, been making steel since 1969 and um, have had a long history as a company of, of uh, not laying off teammates, paying for performance. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as a small company that just has a lot of places to it. Um, and our culture is really, really important to us. Uh, we're a flat organization uh, where, where we would hope every teammate shows up every day feeling like they have an opportunity to, to make a difference and change how the company operates. So um, I personally feel real fortunate to, to be a, a team member with this company. It's a great place to be. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting here you describe it as a, as a company that feels like a small company. And I totally agree with that as, a, as an outsider that has sort of been outside looking in, helping you guys over the years. It, I would never guess if I didn't know who you were, I would never guess that you were, you know, fortune 500 company, right. You know, America's largest steel producer, one of the U S's biggest companies. It just doesn't have that feel. Not that you don't know, you don't have a good uh, scalability and that sort of thing, but just the, the culture I think is a big part of it. Right. It has a very customer centric and small team feel to it, which is very unique. I think for a company your size. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, to do with the small towns that we're in. We, we feel like a small town company probably. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have a way of retaining that, that feel when you, when you acquire companies too, which uh, we'll come back to that point. Right. Too. So what is your, what is your role at uh, Newcore? You know, what, what, maybe talk about, maybe start off with where you, how you started uh, your journey core and where you're at now. Okay. So uh, I, I joined the company almost 20 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and I was uh, my, my history before Nucor was was in operations and, and um, human resources. And Nucor hired me into an HR role, and uh, I became the, the general manager of human resources. In 2016, my, my career path changed considerably, and um, I, I became the general manager of digital innovation. Um, we, we are a very decentralized company, so that that role really had a lot to do with leveraging um, a, a data platform to, to build BI and digital experiences for our customers. So uh, I was in that role for a few years and then consumed um, uh, the, the overall IT function for the organization, which 
was really surprising to me since I did not have a technology background, um, but has been just a fantastic experience. I've, I've learned so much and, and it's just been a great journey. Um, and then last year, um, under our new CEO, uh, I, I assumed, uh, in addition to my IT responsibilities, uh, responsibility for talent management uh, across the company as well. So I've got uh, both the technology and the talent side, which is, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, Eric, you know, you, if you're engaged in technology and you're not engaged in people, it's not going to go very well. So it's an interesting combination to, to work across those functions in our company. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a great combination, a lot of fun, more, more synergies than what people might, might think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have, you have such a unique background that's really well suited for, for that role. Uh, it, and I think a lot of people could learn from that. Or a lot of organizations could learn from that. And the fact that you came in and whatever it was 2016, I think you said, and didn't have a bunch of it background. I, I remember at the time you saying, you know, I know very little to, <laughs> to nothing about, about right. technology and you were the first to admit that. And I think that actually worked to your advantage because you didn't, you didn't get sucked into some of the techno speak and the, right. uh, the common traps that, you know, a lot of tech focused people will, will fall into. You were thinking of it more from a operations and a people perspective first. And then technology was just sort of something that was along for the ride that you had to learn about along the way, which I think is you know, a really important nuance that has made you successful in this role. Well, it, it didn't, it didn't feel helpful at the time. <laughs> it would have felt better to know more at the time, but in, in retrospect, I, I do think it was probably helpful. Um, you know, when you're, when you're new in a role like that and, and people know that you're inexperienced, you do get to ask a lot more questions, I think, and you can ask dumber questions. And I, I got to ask a lot of questions about what people inside the company needed. And, and I asked a lot of very simple questions to our customers too. And, um, I think a lot of those questions I asked, people were, were like, wow, I can't believe he's asking such a simple question. But in some cases, those simple questions were, were really helpful for us to, to think through things differently. So it was it, it was it was good. Um, uh, but it, it was uncomfortable. It was definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to ask you a, a couple questions here in a second. But in the meantime, just to give you a sense of where. Uh, people are joining from. They're really all over the place. We've got uh, someone from the UK, uh, Minnesota, Texas, Los Angeles, California. I know we've got someone from Spain here on, on Crowdcast. Um, and uh, so far on YouTube, I'm, I'm not getting a, a read over there on, on YouTube, but uh, we've got a, a global audience here right now. So appreciate right. everyone that's joining and um, feel free to chat a question at any point along the way. I'm going to keep an eye on those and it won't interrupt us at all. And I'll, I'll sort of moderate and uh, fire away with with questions here for Dan as as you guys um, pop them into the chat boxes here. But in the meantime, I have a few I wanted to start with just to set the context and, and get a feel for transformation at at Newcore. And I, I want to focus quite a bit of time talking about the current journey you're going through the you know the the seven year journey you're going through now that um, that we'll talk about. But even before that, maybe just to preface that. I think if we back up and just look at Nucor as an organization, I don't know if a lot of people know this about Nucor, but Nucor is a well-studied organization as it relates to innovation, disruption, uh, particularly in the steel and not just in the steel industry, but in just in general, how to build a business that can be disruptive and innovative. And maybe could you talk a little bit about the whole, you know, how Nucor really burst onto the scene and that was it the 80s when the whole mini mill concept sort of you guys disrupted the U.S. 
steel market with the mini mill concept. Maybe talk about that. And I think that leads us into this history of transformation and disruption and innovation that you guys have always had, but maybe start there. If you don't mind, just give us a little bit of history. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. So that actually goes back to the sixties. We had a brand new CEO in the late sixties and the the company was a conglomerate at that time. And it, it was not a profitable conglomerate. And he stripped away all the pieces of the company, except a steel joist plant in Florence, South Carolina. And if you don't know what a joist is, if you walk into Home Depot or Walmart and look up and you see the zigzag thing that holds the roof up, that's a joist made out of steel. And he got frustrated that he couldn't get a reliable supply of steel from the big integrated steel makers like U.S. Steel and Bethlehem. So he decided to integrate backwards and he didn't have the capital to enter the traditional steel industry. So he used an innovation um, that others were unable to commercialize and Nucor grabbed it and was able to make it work. And that's the electric arc furnace. And that's where the mini mill comes from. An electric arc furnace is, is what's used to make steel in what we now call a mini mill. And um, we were able to make all of the products that fed the joist plant and that model expanded where you'd have more joist plants, more steel mills, sell the excess steel on the open market. And in the eighties, um, there were a couple other transformative innovations in very different types of steel products. One of them was around a, a continuous slab processor, which allowed us to enter the flat rolled steel markets. These are the big coils of steel that you would make uh, the shells of cars from and all kinds of uh, construction applications. That really allowed us to begin taking a lot of market share from the big integrateds. And we also levered a, a new technology that others were unable to use in making wide flange beams for uh, construction. So um, at that point in the 80s, those innovations really launched us in, into a different category of steel production. And by the time we were in the early 2000s, we had surpassed all of our rivals to become the largest steel company in North America. Wow. Yeah. And it's, uh, I forgot what the name of the book was. There's a book I read when I first heard of Nucor. Um, it was a book about disruption. I don't know if it was, uh, innovators dilemma. I want to say, was that? That's the one? It. Yeah. Clayton Christensen wrote that book. Clay Christensen. Yeah. And he, he talks a lot about Nucor in that book. And, does. um, even when I was getting my uh, master's, I remember studying Nucor. So it's, it's fascinating to now be working with you guys over the years and seeing how you've continued that, that history of, innovation, disruption, um, challenging the status quo, that sort of thing. So maybe fast forward to the journey you're in the midst of right now, and maybe give us a little bit of context of what is this current digital transformation that you're on and what triggered it and what, what, uh, you know, what are the component, what are the major components of that? Sure. Sure. And, you know, you, you, you're using the word transformation, Eric, and, um, that's a word that we, we used to use. We don't, we don't use it so much anymore, especially when it comes to digital. And, and the reason is um, when you look at what's happening to our overall business, our overall business is changing. The story that I just articulated about our history, um, those innovations allowed our organization to have tremendous cost advantages in the marketplace. Those cost advantages led us to build an organizational structure that was really based on a very decentralized regional model where mills ran very, very decentralized. They had their own market carved out 
And, you know, probably before 2000, th those mills, if, if the cord was severed between that mill and Charlotte, North Carolina, they, they could keep running just fine. And, and as we got bigger and more sophisticated and began to make more sophisticated products, we, we became a bigger component of the steel supply chain. We began to have uh, overlapping regions, multiple products uh, going to the same customer, far more complex products that, that required a much more sophisticated approach with our customers as well. And by the time you got to 2005, six, seven, eight, our customers were really demanding something different from us. They, they didn't wanna work with a collection of, of autonomous mills. They wanted to work with, with the steel producer that was strategic in, in how we would engage them. They, they wanted a supply chain partner. And we didn't have a history in that. We, we didn't really know how to do that. So we, we began down a journey um, to, to really begin transforming ourselves commercially. Um, how is it that we engage in the supply chain in a more strategic way to provide solutions rather than just commodity products? You know, we, we have a more diverse offering of steel than any other producer in North America. And we also make steel products that go into construction applications that allow for solutions different than what anyone else can provide. So if you're going to take advantage of all of those synergies across your business, you got to integrate in some way. You, you got to create the connections um, to, to take advantage of, of that diversified product offering. The other thing we did is we vertically integrated. We, we, uh, we vertically integrated both upstream and downstream raw materials, and, and we went deeper into downstream products like tube and grew our metal buildings business, things like that. So as the, the business was transforming, it became obvious that we needed a different set of information inside of the company to make decisions. Um, vertical integration always sounds good. It's hard. And having good information to make better decisions throughout those vertical chains matters. Um, and as our relationships with our customers became more sophisticated, um, the things they were asking for from us changed and evolved. So when it comes to digital IT business systems, ERPs, the strategy there really ended up following um, you know, what, what the market was asking from us and what our transformation as an organization set up for us to really be able to do with, with our customers and in the marketplace. So we, we really talk about our transformation of being more of a, a business transformation. Digital and IT follows that. And, and we see it as a, as a supporting mechanism, one of many mechanisms to actually enable the business intelligence we need inside or to enable the customer experience that we're trying to create with our customers. Um, those are the drivers. Technology um, enables it. So um, it's, uh, it's really been a unifier in some cases of, of a broader strategy. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that you don't really use the word digital transformation and you mentioned the, the culture. You have a unique culture, you have a strong culture. And I've, I've learned the hard way over the years working with you guys, there's certain words that you, just, you guys just don't like. Uh, consultants is one of them. Organizational change management, the, the term, not the concept, but the term right. change management you guys don't like. Centralization, I think I used that word once in a meeting and, it, and I got... You got like, an instant vibe off of that, I'm sure. Yeah, nails on a chalkboard. Do not yeah. say the word centralization. <laughs> here. Yeah. So, but, don't use too much. But I think it's interesting because um, 
one of the challenges that you see with a lot of organizations that we do not see with Nucor is that a lot of companies don't have a clear vision of what they want to be when they grow up. Whereas you guys, for better or for worse, whether you like it or not, you guys have a very clear vision of who you are and what you're trying to be, where the warts are, what your strengths are. And I haven't really seen that level of alignment and focus uh, from many companies over the years. And I think that's something that has served you well, not just in this journey, but just as a company overall. Would you agree with that? Or does that make it more challenging at times? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that that, that I, why I'm proud to be a part of the company is, is that the folks in our company are, are really dedicated to the success of our company and our customers. There, there's a lot of ownership and, and we're a group of folks who, who like to win. We want our customers to win. Um, and, you know, I, I think our leaders are really serving the 27,000 people who, who want success. They feel a, a obliged to chart a path that people can follow so that we can do it together. In a decentralized company, you know, we have fewer structural mechanisms to tell people, here's how you do your job. So if you don't have a vision, then you, you really don't have an opportunity to harness energy and get people moving in the right direction. And um, I, I would say we, we probably, uh, view, um, you know, vision and communication is the mechanisms to harness energy and get people moving together, far less than structure, control, and, and things like that. All right, good stuff. He's a, Dan is a very smart guy. I love talking to him. I love that interview. Go check out episode number 19 if you haven't already heard it and listen to that full interview because there's a lot of other gems and nuggets of really good wisdom from, from Dan in that discussion. So we are uh, closing it down on their number one spot. We have another guest on here after a break who is another uh, third stage consulting team member. He's on the show or he was on the show uh, a few weeks ago talking about software evaluation and selection best practices. I'll tell you who it is right when we come back from a break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm going through the top 10 list of the best interviews of summer 2021. And we're up to number four now. And number four is Brian LaCaruba, who is a, a manager at Third Stage. And he's been at Third Stage since the very, very early days. Uh, within the first few months of starting the company, he, he was one of the first team members that joined. And so he's been with the company for over three years now, moved his way up, taken on more responsibility. And he's seen a lot of different clients uh, in, the, in the market throughout the world. And one of the um, things that Brian helps with, among other things, is software evaluation and selection. And so he has a good perspective on just sort of a broad overview of what to expect, 
in a software selection process and what some of the trends are in the software selection space and just sharing some of his lessons learned helping clients through their software selection processes. So we had Brian on the show back in episode number 23, which you can go back and listen to if you'd like to hear the whole interview. It's a great discussion, but we're going to play you a highlight right here. Here's here's some highlight clips from the interview with Brian LaCaruva from Third Stage Consulting. You know, talking about the software evaluation process in general and why is it so important if we just sort of back up and um, think about just software evaluation and selection, why is that process so important to organizations that are about to go through some sort of transformation? Yeah, I view it as kind of a two-part answer, Eric. And, and the first is kind of the obvious answer, of which there's a lot of different software out there and navigating through the available software packages and uh, types of technologies is really important to be able to set the organization on the right path. And um, there's there's so many options and they're changing uh quickly all the time and vendors are making advances and acquiring companies and moving into different spaces. Of course, just being able to navigate that and get something that's the right fit. But uh, I I think it's more important from another standpoint, which is that um, you can, you'll often have a lot of things that can work for you, a lot of different software systems, but the, the process itself and going through this evaluation before you pick the software is super important to drive alignment within the organization on what matters and to really look at what are the goals of what you're trying to achieve with the technology and making sure that you're, whatever you're getting, you're getting for the right reasons. And that's even more important than having the right tool. So you'll have a lot of things that can do things in a very effective way for you. But if your business is, uh, business or your organization is not trying to change in that way that the software might drive you towards, it could, it could put you in a bad spot. So having that, having that alignment and dir- common direction and getting those involved in the process to really draw out unstated assumptions and needs is critical. Yeah, that's a great point. So it's a, it's more than just choosing the software then is, is what you're saying. It's also the sort of this secondary benefit, which is a really important one, which is getting aligned, getting on the same page and sort of defining what that vision is for the project. Yeah. Point. And then knowing once you, once you have the tool and the vendor and the tech and the team in place, you're going to work with that they've been, that, that you've assessed them on the right basis. You know, we've, we've worked with some clients who've gone through and They've picked a, they've picked a system based on what someone else recommended to them, or based on a very fast evaluation process. And then, as they just went through the implementation, just find that, um, yeah, maybe a great system, but it's not. These aren't the types of things we're trying to do. So, right, yeah, absolutely. And so, when you when you look at the evaluation process, um, in, in sort of, you know, with our client experience and in, in examples or, or case studies of, of situations you've been in helping clients select the software. What have some of the biggest challenges been that, that you think organizations face when evaluating potential systems in the market? Hey, one of the one of the first ones to start with is even just knowing what categories of systems to look at. And I saw this was one of the blogs you just published in the last uh, few days, Eric. But around the difference, uh, knowing do we need an ERP system or a CRM or an HCM or a VPMS or looking across those different categories and even knowing where to start. How do you think about the foundation of what you're trying to do? Uh, being, being able to assess and, and know what's out there and what kind of things it's going to help enable you in, in changing. So uh, a lot of organizations, depending on how much, you know, if you have a lot of people who have been around, you've been using a legacy system for a lot of years and your people have been using that system and they haven't been in a lot of other companies that use other technology, simply based on the frame of what do you use uh, today? How do I want that thing to work better as opposed to being able to have that broader look at what are some of the other capabilities we could be looking do? What are some of the questions we need to ask that we're not asking? So uh, I think that's a big one. Another big one too is just being able to um, 
get a really clear and decisive picture from the vendors on the things that they need to know. You know, every vendor is uh, happy to put out any canned material or do a, a demo that they've done a thousand times that is done in the way they want. They show you all the things that look good in their product and all the ways that others might like it, but it doesn't necessarily, um, unless you have something that's really targeted in a process that draws out your key requirements and what you need to do to be able to um, put those in front of the vendor in a way that really forces them to show you their, their product warts and all and that the things that may be harder for them to do is a, it's a key challenge. And yeah, those would be two of the big ones we see. Yeah, but that first one's pretty interesting. And I think it's, it's one that it seems like a lot of organizations don't think about, which is, you know, that whole point about what kind of software are we really looking for? It mm -hmm. seems like a lot of organizations sort of dive into just an assumption that, hey, we're going to go find an ERP system or, um, you know, we're going to look at one myopic part of our business and look for, you know, warehouse management or e-commerce or whatever. And then our other organizations just don't know. And so I think it's really important to educate yourself on what those different systems are and recognizing that it all doesn't have to be the same system. You know, you might be looking at, you know, multiple systems. And I want to come back to that here in a few minutes, maybe we we'll talk about the whole best of breed versus mm -hmm. single ERP um, as we unpack this a little bit more. But um, in the meantime, though, before we get to that, what, what are some of the, when, when you think about the evaluation process and everything that goes into it, what do you think the most important parts of a, of a software selection are? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first thing is to not start with the software. It's to start with your strategy and to start with your business processes. So really understand where are you trying to go as an organization? What are the changes you need to make? What do you expect to, see, to do over the next three to five years? What are your big challenges now? Uh, and make sure that is driving the direction in which you're trying to go. And then being able to really take that to the next the next step, which is to drill that down into understanding your current state business processes and uh, tying that back. You know, we always start when we do selections, we, we do a strategy workshop, but then the, the bulk of the, the starting point on it is a series of business process workshops where we, we drill in. And it's not even getting to extreme levels of depth on every process to select software. You don't need to know uh, every, every click, everything that everyone's doing at every step of the way, but you do need to have a good overall foundation of what are your, what are your end to end processes? How do they, big part is how do they connect? Uh, what are the handoffs uh, between different departments as you go? Trying not to look at this just in your existing silos, uh, but looking at it from the standpoint of how does your business tie together, uh, end to end and those different elements, uh, connect. Mm -hmm. So that that's really the key of the foundation of it all. And once you have that, everything you're going to be looking at from a technology base perspective is not based on just what is inherently the best system or the one that other people like, but it's going to be figuring out the one that's right for you. Yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. And it's, it's easy to worry too much about what other companies are doing or, you know, what your peers are doing or whatever, without really thinking about, well, you know, what is it we need and focusing on those, those aspects of it. Um, yeah. And I want to add one more to that too, which is just from the from the vendor perspective of uh, and and how you move the project. You know, vendors are may have certain approaches of how they want to take it or tell you that it's going to follow along this step or that step. But you really want to be able to make sure you're driving this at a pace that's that's right for you. You don't want it to um, drag out unnecessarily, but you also don't want to move it to some um, artificial timeline that someone else is setting. You want to be able to look at this and figure out the uh, the right steps to be able to. Um, move it along effectively, do what you need to do to understand what your needs are and to be able to, to drive the vendors to, to get you those answers uh, and to do it in a way that's giving the team the, uh, enough time to absorb without getting stuck in overanalyzing. Right, yeah, makes total sense. So just to build on uh, my last question a little bit, this is actually a question from the audience uh, from someone watching on YouTube. 
uh, this is from Zishan on YouTube, he asks, uh, what is the importance of business requirement documentation before evaluation of software applications? Yeah, it's critically important. And although I'd say, uh, again, when we talk about when, when third stage gets involved in a project, that's the first step that we do in this. We consider it a step of the evaluation as opposed to in a way something you're doing before. But you definitely do want to have a set of business requirements uh, that's really driving what you're looking at before you decide what systems you're going to bring into the picture. Uh, and sometimes there may be systems that are considered for various reasons. If you're part of a larger organization and your parent company is using a certain system and there's a, it's a desire to get you on that, that's going to be on your list regardless of whether or not it's the right answer. You want to start considering it. Um, there may be an upgrade to your legacy system you'll consider as well. But so there, there's various considerations there, but you'll always want to, uh, really drive those requirements out first and get uh, get a good list of what it is you're looking for uh, and, and have that be the foundation of how you're looking at the systems you bring into the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And I always tell clients too that, you know, if you're, if you know, you're going to go through a ERP or digital transformation, whatever it is, whatever type of software you're, you're looking to deploy, you're going to have to define your requirements at some point, you know, mm -hmm. at the very least you would have to define them to build the software or to configure the software. So you might as well, Get the benefit of that of helping you evaluate and find the right software so that alone i think is a, is a you know sort of a an argument for defining those requirements up front and certainly um you know just making sure you find the right software because there's so many different systems out there and so many different options it's easy to find a mismatch which can make it very difficult if, if not impossible to, to implement effectively yeah and, and sometimes there are unique requirements to you, kind of niche items that are really important to your organization that may not um, be, that may not be very common that you just have to get into enough detail to be able to get it. And again, you don't need to know every every step of every operation, but sometimes there are really critical items that you just need a software to do. And if you don't, if you don't have those, those can, and it's not to say they other uh, systems won't have a way to work around that or to find a way to make it happen, but um, you really want to know what those key unique drivers are. And, and now, that's a big part of it too, is being able to identify not just the things that you need, but what are the things you need that are uh, going to be out of the ordinary, a little bit harder for uh, or uh, other vendors to meet and trying to make sure that you're asking about those in the right way. Yeah. So how do you, just building on that a little bit, just as a follow-up, how do you um, balance the, how do you find that right balance of knowing how much detail to get into and how, you know, how exhaustive you want that requirements list to be uh, versus you know, you don't want to get in, caught up in analysis paralysis and have so many requirements that your head starts to spin and you can't really <laughs> differentiate the different options out there. How do you, how do you find that right balance? Yeah, it's a, from our perspective, you know, we try to take that, we, we've got um, kind of some guidelines we look at when, we, when getting into workshops based on the size of organization, the number of people in the process to try to, and, and the way that we go about doing those of just lengths of time. And I don't want to throw numbers out here because it's kind of tied into the specifics of how we do it. but. Um, you know, we, we do try to look at just getting through within a reasonable period of time. You know, we're talking days or, or weeks, depending on the size of the organization, not spending months getting into processes of, um, or in some cases, it can be a day or less than a day, depending on a small organization. But really just trying to um, make sure you're running through and you're getting that end to end. And as we facilitate those, we'll, we'll ask the questions that are helping uh, guide to um, 
tell me what you do. And, and as someone may drill into, hey, I've got this pain point. Well, tell me a little bit more about that, but may, maybe stop before someone may get into, well, these, this is all the, all the things I have to do with this spreadsheet to move it around and to manipulate the data. Um, but we'll want to know kind of what are the key drivers and things like that. So it, it's a balance in trying to get through workshops. But one of the, the key principles we try to follow too is like, let, let's make sure we're at least getting that end to end picture. And then if there are areas we need to drill into, we've at least gotten enough of an understanding of that that we can always come back to it and make sure to spend some more time uh, on it with maybe a little focused discussion on a certain topic. Yeah, yeah, makes, makes total sense. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. You sort of triggered a, a follow-up question or it's, it leads into another question I had for you, which is, you know, you, you talk about um, buy-in, you know, just getting buy-in and sort of that, that organizational ownership of the decision. Not that you necessarily need a unanimous agreement on, you know, what the priorities are, or what kind of software you're going to deploy, but it, it is, there is a, a something to be said for the buy-in that you get by involving different people and different stakeholders in the evaluation process, but sort of building on that thread and in, in, in looking at change management in general, how do you, how do we typically, and how do our teams with our clients typically address change management as part of the evaluation process and, and why, why are we thinking about change management this early in the, in the process when we haven't even picked the software yet? Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's two parts of how I look at the change management part of the conversation. The first, as you talked about, is just the, the process itself and tying to that first answer I gave at the top of this is the, um, the, the act of aligning and understanding what people's expectations are is a, is a big part of that. Um, and, and you want to, a, a good way to think about this is, is if there's any potential conflict coming in this, if there's any ways in which people are pulling different directions, it's going to happen at some point. You want to draw that out as quickly as possible and and uh, figure that out up front and know if people are, are looking at things in a different way. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just people have different experiences and expectations. You want to be able to uh, capture that early and deal with it and deal with it before you make some of the big decisions and start setting expectations and budgets and things along those lines. So um, it's really important to go through that early. Um, actually one of the one of the clients working with right now we're having a lot of a lot of really great discussions it's been taking a little longer on the selection but it's been a good thing because it's been uh, helping draw out it's a unique organization that does um, a number of different functions that don't normally get pulled together in one organization even for a small organization so we've been working through with them of uh, what are the expectations and still trying to work through to align around that so it's an important thing to to do and and to help guide and understand what are the what are the areas you're going to need to support and you know so so the act itself of going through the evaluation is important from change management of, of just driving out those expectations but we also like to use it as a starting point to even for those who aren't as deeply involved in the selection process 
to to work with um, whether it's sending out a survey to the entire organization or doing some focus groups or just starting to get some communication out and to just get a pulse of where the organization stands and the people you know because the people who are making the, the decisions will be uh, ideally involved and, and it's affected by their teams but they're not necessarily ones who are working in the system as much day to day as some of the other people who are going to want to uh, make sure to know what are their pain points and challenges and what is their view on uh, what their past experience has been in the organization. So we often, one of our, our most common tools is starting with an organizational readiness assessment and a survey that goes out to people up front to help start gauging that and to start aligning our other activities around that. All right, another great conversation with another great guest and a, and a great team member, someone I enjoy having on the team very much. And uh, that's Brian LaCaruba coming in at number four on our list of the top 10 interviews on the uh, pod, on the uh, Transformation Ground Control podcast for summer 2021. So we're coming up here now in the top three. We're getting closer. And when we come back, we're going to get to number three. Uh, really interesting and entertaining guest. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation with her. Um, she talks a lot about different emerging technologies and trends in the space. Um, we're, I'll tell you who it is when we come back from a quick break from Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm Eric Kimberling here going through the top 10 interviews of summer 2021. These are the interviews that got our attention the most, got your attention the most, got the most engagement and comments and likes from you. Um, and they're also the ones that I enjoyed the most. They're just ones that I found the most interesting and I think are most important for people to hear as they educate themselves and think about how they're going to tackle their digital transformation journeys. And we're up to the top three now and at number three, is a guest that I actually met and got to know over social media. Uh, I believe it was on TikTok. I had just started my, my TikTok channel back in the spring of 2021. And by summer of 2021, I was engaging and interacting with, with this person who is also in the space, um, working for a company that's, I wouldn't say they're a competitor of third stage, but they, you know, I'd say are similar space and, and do slightly different things. Uh, but she had a very interesting take on the, the industry and the space. So I thought it'd be great to have her on the show. And this is uh, Emma Roloff from a company called Navient Solutions. And the reason I wanted to have her on the show is because clearly she knows what she's talking about. She's engaging, good to talk to, but also because she has a unique perspective on emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and document management, uh, robotic process automation, uh, robotics in general. So things that are sort of pushing the boundaries of getting outside your core back office systems like enterprise uh, ERP systems or CRM or HCM, 
really looking at some of those more advanced technologies out on the outer edges. So that's why I thought it'd be great to have her on the show, and that's why we did have her on the show back in episode number 27. This is number three on our list of the top 10 interviews from summer 2021 on the Ground Control Podcast. This is Emma Roloff. You know, I know one of the things that when we when I looked at your background and as we've talked, I know um, RPA, robotic process automation, is, is one area that um, you guys focus on. And, and what I want to do today, there's a series of questions I have here to start that you know, kind of dive into some of these uh, emerging technologies and, and pieces of technologies that don't necessarily get addressed by ERP or enterprise-wide technologies. And one of them is is RPA. So maybe help us understand what RPA is, what, what what's an example of where it might be used. Yeah. Um, so RPA stands for robotic process automation. And just like it says, it is bringing in not a physical, but a software robot to help you manage repetitive processes within your organization. And so that's kind of at its its most um, pure definition. Um, but then we also, and this is where we get into to the land of ambiguity, there are um, tools. And sometimes as you start to kind of do some investigation in how RPA works and kind of where it kind of blends with some of the other terms. There are times where there will be artificial intelligence or machine learning that are also working alongside with that software robot to be able to execute tasks that might go above and beyond just repetitive. Mm -hmm. But um, when we take a look at use cases for things for RPA and how it can help organizations is it's really looking at where do you have tasks that um, are completed, you know, and sometimes for large organizations, things are completed thousands of times a day. Um, or um, when you're, you're looking at, you know, taking information from one system and entering it into another system. Or places where you maybe would desire to have something like uh, API integration so that your solutions can fit together much more seamlessly but it's an application that you don't have control out of because it's a third party application, or you'd like that integration to be with a website and you don't have the ability to build the same type of integration you would if you had ownership of all of those platforms. RPA gives us the ability to have your little robot assistant go and execute those tasks on your behalf so that your people can focus on the more innately human parts of their job rather than focusing on those really mundane or repetitive tasks that are done repeatedly throughout their day. Um, and so sometimes that RPA can be done um, in like an unattended fashion is what we call it. And that's where we would look at like really large batch processes that are happening hundreds or thousands or you know hundreds of thousands of times in a day. Um, or we have some attend or attended automation that allows your um, physical human workers to interact with the, that RPA um, bot to execute tasks in tandem to speed up their work on a daily basis. And so there's a lot of variability of how it can be used depending on the specific process and the other tools that are kind of making up your capability collection. Um, but ultimately the best way to kind of look at where you would want to use RPA is automating highly repetitive tasks so that you can just take that portion out of your day. So something like processing purchase orders or um, I'm just trying to think of other examples, but POs, that, that's one that seems like there's a high volume of purchase orders or 
that sort of thing that people Yeah. Um, so one of the examples that I like to use when we're talking about, um, like, uh, for example, in a um, claims scenario, when we're looking at adjudicating a claim and you've got a collection of information and you have to gather information from different websites and or download a police report or you've got you have to bring everything together into one place. One of the things that we can do is have your RPA bot go out and collect some of that information that you may need to make that decision. So go download a report on your behalf and bring it into your system of records so that you have access to it. Or um, and, and there's, you know, the scenario where maybe you have a process that leads to having to open a ticket on an external website to as kind of the last stage of your process. You can gather all of the information and do all of the processing that you that needs critical thought and then have your your RPA bot grab all of the data that you've collected and go out to that third party website and enter that data and open that ticket for you. So, you know, in that scenario, we're not talking about saving you hours a day. That might be, you know, two to three minutes to open that ticket. But if you're doing that a hundred times a day, all of a sudden that 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 starts to add up pretty significantly for you. So it's it's um, one of the ways that I, I kind of use to conceptualize how this works is a lot of times it's if you can show a robot at, or that that bot that you're working with how you are executing that task and by clicking around on your screen and it can see the work that you're doing and where you're gathering information and where you're putting it, it will be able to execute that task for you. Now, is there always a return on investment to have that bot do that work for you if there's not a high enough volume of it? No, probably not. Um, but that's where, again, when we get to those really repetitive tasks that we can map very easily and we can essentially train that bot to what you're doing on your screen from day to day, then it will be able to execute that task on your behalf. Gotcha. Now, is this is this custom software or is this sort of off the shelf software that you could deploy in different process settings or different environments? There, um, so there are, I would say all of the solutions that I'm aware of are pretty configurable in nature. So um, there are probably, you know, custom RPA bots that have been developed by, by people, but everyone from Microsoft to some of the big names within RPA, like UiPath, Cryon, um, Automation Anywhere, Blue Prism, those are the, the large names within this space. And there's a, there are many, many more, including open source tools like Robocop, er, er, uh, Robobot. And there's you know tons and tons of tools that you can choose from. Um, and most of them are going to be kind of of that low code configuration environment. So you have to understand how to interact with the tool. You have to understand the, the process behind it and how to configure the, the tool to do what you're looking for. But you're typically not building it from scratch as you're going into it. And it's really more mapping it to do what the business process requires at that point. Gotcha. So so I had, uh, you know, you and I exchanged notes on the on the questions I was going to ask you, and I'm already going to blow the script now because I can't help but ask, even though I was going to wait until later to ask about change management, I have to do it now. Yeah. So when you have a situation where you automate someone's job and I'm a AP clerk and I'm processing, um, you know, processing purchase orders and paying, you know, setting up payments and whatnot. And so you're going to automate my job with this, this, uh, 
uh, the RoboCop, as you called it the first time. I, I noticed the RoboCop. <laughs> yeah, before I said it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the RoboBot or whatever the software you, is. I told you there was going to be a time or two while we were having this conversation <laughs> that I misspoke. So go ahead. Sorry. That's why we do it live because it's not editable now. It's, it's on. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows I make up words. Anyhow, continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm here with Emma Roloff from Navient Technologies. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more discussion with her on transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Emma, and we're discussing AI and different types of emerging technologies. So let's jump right back into the conversation. When you automate someone's job, how do you manage that change? I mean, because that's a pretty significant change to come in and say, we're going to have a robot or RPA automate what you might be spending, you know, 50, 60% of your time doing. What, what have you seen work or what have you seen some of the challenges be from a, from a change management or human perspective of that? So I think the biggest, and I, I, I don't want to say this is a misconception because it is a change and you do have to manage that change. Um, but I think what typically happens and what I've seen with our customers is more often than not, they are welcoming of that portion of their job being taken because it's not that they don't have enough other things to be doing. It's that the other things don't get the attention that they should be, or they don't have the capacity to ever take a deep breath. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's been organizations that we go in to help specifically in this accounts payable scenario that you mentioned, that we're going in with, whether it's RPA or some of the other tools that we can get into that we've got that kind of help eliminate some of this manual work. And we go in and we help them automate portions of that process to eliminate the manual keying that they need to do. And it opens up time for them to suddenly be paying their bills on time as an organization. Because in the past, they've had a three month backlog of processing that they're trying to get through and they can't hire and train people quick enough or they don't have the budget to have those people there. And so rather most of the time when we come in, unless it's a very, very, very large an organization that has a lot of people only ever touching these repetitive tasks, do we get into the place where we're displacing people's positions? We're really just refocusing their time to focus on what are the really impactful parts of their job that drive the business forward. And usually once you kind of put it in that frame of mind, they're welcoming of that change because they don't want to be doing that part of their job anyhow. And so it's, I mean, and again, I don't, I don't do, do not want to mislead that there isn't 
you know, some positions that might be um, eliminated because of intelligent automation and some of the, the tools that we're going to talk about today. But more often than not, the organizations are raring and ready to go to take that person and train them to do something different if their whole position was something that's being eliminated or they're shifting their focus onto that higher value task. Um, but it does, you have to have the conversation honestly yeah. on the front end for them to get to the point where they understand that and they're not fearful of the change or fighting the change. Because if they think that their job is gonna go away, they're not gonna help you do it. But if they understand, we're not here to eliminate your job, we're here to make it better. And let's talk about what your your ideal better job looks like and you be a part of this. They will come up with new ideas to manage the process. They'll help bring forward other, you know, bottlenecks within the process that you should be focusing on as well. And it'll be just a, so much more collaborative throughout the entire process. Yeah. So getting their engagement and buy-in early on rather than defining the change and forcing the change on them is sort of the yeah and one of the things i mentioned that you know from our perspective our methodology we have typically a blended approach of bringing in a process consultant and or using data to help us hone in on where those opportunities are for improvement but i think that that process consultant and even you know whether it's someone internally or a third party but somebody being there to help you have those conversations and ask questions in the right way and frame things in the right way and not forget about the people is such a critical part of that because you know as you get into conversations about change it's a scary thing for people and you know that i mean we're both human centric change people um and when you can help them feel even incrementally more comfortable with it and help them feel ownership of it. One of the main things that we do is a discovery process where our team is working alongside with our customers team to design what that future state looks like. And when it's somebody from the outside asking questions of why do you do it that way? Or is there a different way to do this? It's less threatening to answer those questions and you don't get the, the same defensive nature that you do if you're managing it internally. And I don't know if you guys have had that experience, but sometimes that like friendly third party asking the question is a lot more well received than somebody, um, even if they have good intentions within your organization. Yeah, it's, you're not, you're not caught up people know that you're not caught up in the politics, you know, the internal dynamics and, you know, we're not, you're not jockeying as an outside party. You're not jockeying for any sort of, there's no ulterior motive to suggest something like that, but it could be perceived that way. If it's someone internally suggesting like, Hey, what is Emma, what do you do all day? Like, you know, do we, do, we really, do you really need to be doing that? Maybe we should just automate your job. That's going to be a lot more threatening if I say it to you as, an, as a coworker versus a consultant comes in and maybe more tactfully asks the same, the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. And, it, and it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, we see a lot of organizations that um, that don't even think about like what what are we going to do with that time that we save? You know, they and that is something I think from an org design perspective, you have to do is say, OK, if I'm saving 30 or 40 percent of Emma's time and she doesn't have to process POs anymore, what is she going to do? What's her focus? How does it how does she reprioritize her work um, in the unfortunate event that her job is going to go away? what does that look like? What do you do with Emma? You know, and, and just having those answers is important. And, and companies don't think about that a lot of times because they're so focused on the technology. Like, how do we get this technology to work and how do we define the process? But they don't always think about what does that impact to the organization? 
Yeah, and I again, we've had some, and I would say more early, early adoption of digital transformation when there used to be mail rooms with you know twenty people that were working in these large organizations. That was when I, I think we saw a little bit more of like, a, okay, so what does our training path look like for these people or where well, where else in the organization can we find a spot? And it was a little bit more purposeful. I would say it's been a while since there hasn't been enough work to keep people busy after we've automated portions of their job. Um, that like, it isn't like, a, we just, you know, more they've brought in automation because they have a capacity issue as of, or they are growing so rapidly and they would rather not have to hire at the clip that's required to support that growth. And so then they're able to keep the same size team, but you know, the, the company growth would have outpaced the size of their team had they not automated the process. Right. I've got one customer who I think if I'm gonna say this correctly, they have a process that they put in place probably 10 years ago. Um, and so they were early adopters of, of technology and using it to manage processes. But over the course of that time frame, they have offset an additional headcount of 130 people from how they were doing the process to what they're doing today and incremental improvements to that process over time has allowed them. So it's not a hard ROI because they didn't hire those 130 people, but based off of their project projections, they were able to offset that much additional headcount. Yeah. 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 It seems like in more recent years, uh, companies are a lot more lean, you know, they don't have a lot of, a lot of, uh, fat to, to trim, you know, in terms of, uh, people I know in the nineties, when I started my career, there was a lot more, it felt like there's a lot more trimming that had still had to happen in terms of, of headcount and whatnot. All right. Great stuff. I love that interview. And I actually learned a ton in that discussion as I do with most of our guests, but that one in particular, uh, I remember, Several weeks ago, just learning a lot, and it really helped crystallize and clarify a lot of things for me. And so hopefully you found the same to be true. And if you want to learn more, we actually got into a ton of detail. And that was probably, of all the interviews in the top 10 list, I think that was probably the longest interview we did just because we had so much ground to cover. And quite frankly, I had trouble <laughs> kind of uh, condensing it down because I just had so many good questions for her and she had so many great answers. So that is number three on our list, Emma Roloff. You can find her back in episode number 27 if you'd like to see the full episode. So we're down to the down to the last two and uh, two really good ones. Um, one is one that we did uh, just very recently in a real recent episode of Transformation Ground Control. Totally different type of guest, different topic, but very, very relevant. And we, we take a very different topic and make it relevant to digital transformations. And I think you'll find this one really fascinating. That's at number two. And then at number one, it has something to do with supply chain. That's all I'm gonna tell you for now. But uh, when we come back, we'll get to number two. You're listening to the top 10 list of the top 10 interviews from summer 2021 on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices 
at thirdstage-consulting.com. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. You can find us every Wednesday with new episodes on YouTube, as well as all the audio podcast platforms like Amazon, Google, Spotify, uh, Pandora, iHeartRadio, etc. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. Just search for Transformation Ground Control. And if you enjoy this stuff, if you enjoy this episode or other episodes, please drop us a review. Give us uh, a rating, uh, however many stars you think we're worth. Give us your comments, and uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please like the video, subscribe to the channel, and provide any comments you've got there as well. We love uh, getting that feedback, and I actually read all the comments that we get on all the platforms. I I go through a couple times a week and read all of those comments, so I appreciate anything, uh, any feedback you can share there. So we are up to number two on our list, and this was an interview that was, I would say, it. I don't want to say it happened accidentally, but it was one that we just sort of... uh, organically um, invited on the show uh, just a, just last episode, actually, the episode right before this one, back in episode number 33. Uh, and that guest is Jed Hafer from an organization called Mission Peace. And the reason I had Jed on the show is because he has kind of grown up in the world of emotional intelligence and organizational culture and love and logic. If you're not familiar with that term, uh, that is something that he'll, he explains in the interview. Um, and the reason I wanted to bring him on is because even though he's not a traditional digital transformation kind of guy. He knows organizational behavior and psychology and uh, emotional intelligence, leadership, communication, conflict resolution, all the stuff that you really have to be good at in order not only to lead an organization, but certainly to lead an organization through change like a digital transformation or a business transformation. So I thought it'd be really cool to have him on the show as sort of a, not a wild card, but just someone that could give us a different perspective on that human component um, that we commonly cover on the show, but his his angle is a bit different, as you'll see in this interview, and it's it's really interesting. And uh, I'll have to give a caveat here. We had some fairly significant technical issues during the discussion. The audio turned out pretty well. Uh, we had some issues with the video feed, so you'll notice that as you watch, if you're watching it on YouTube, if you're listening on the on the audio platform, you may not notice a difference. But um, that was the only the only catch uh, on on that discussion. But it, it made it more uh, entertaining and, and fun for sure to have that. Uh, unpredictable aspect of, of the live interview we did. So this is uh, Jed Hafer from a organization called Mission Peace. This is number two on our list of the top 10 interviews of summer 2021 on Transformation Ground Control. You think about IQ, that they'll use EQ as a as a measurement of your emotional intelligence. And, and to me, it's not just what you know. I, I try to take it one notch more practical and really tune into how effective you are basically intentionally affecting other people in, in the way that you want to. Uh, we have six principles at Mission Peace and our first is respectful engagement. Uh, we're, we're very, we try to be very proactive and so you're deciding to be respectful even before the interaction starts. You're, you're sort of making a commitment that we're gonna engage respectfully before it even starts and our, our kind of tagline throughout these live trainings, I mostly do live training and in-person consulting. I'm, I'm big on that stuff. Our tagline throughout is that intentionality wins the day. Uh, intentionality will pull us into greatness in whatever the area is. But I go back to the old, uh, if people remember the old Jerry Springer shows, uh, they'd usually bring people on stage intentionally to get them screaming at each other for the entertainment of the audience. 
and you'd see one person get louder and then the other person would get louder and they would interrupt each other at quicker and quicker intervals. I, I teach de-escalation and emotional intelligence. What we found is that the, the person being intentional can actually bring the other person down. Intentionality tends to win the day. And so if I've set out ahead of time with this goal and I'm, I'm more proactive as the other person is being more reactive, I can usually have the, the desired outcome or at least I can control my part of the equation and stay classy and uh, stay employed. <laughs> that was one of the big deals with teachers is let's not do anything that's gonna jeopardize our, our career. Uh, so that's to me, emotional intelligence is, is first and foremost about intentionality. And then we start with ourselves. We start with a self-awareness and then move into other awareness and empathy and the factors that, that make us good at this stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, you talk about Jerry Springer back in the nineties or whenever that was that he was, he was around, but it seems like in today's day and age, in today's culture, throughout the world, not just even in the United States. It's, it seems especially prevalent in the United States just because that's where you and I are. But even in other parts of the world, it just seems like uh, people's opinions and uh, views of each other have just sort of diverged and become more extreme. And you have a lot more Jerry Springer moments, it feels like, every day, you know, and people you deal with personally on a personal level or even organizationally within organizations as well. Yeah, that's my mission. Uh, fewer, fewer Jerry Springer moments, uh, fewer bad YouTube videos involving people in authority and either either having uh, lose their temper and, and, and misuse their power or their authority. And that goes back to love and logic. You know, that's that's my first mission as a parent is not to ever misuse or abuse the power that I have when I'm trying to, to raise kids. So that's where this really started for me. And and as you know, those principles apply just across human interaction. Right, right. Yeah, and in fact, um, when I had first reached out to you about uh, potentially being a, a guest on on my show here, the reason was is because of your love and logic background. And I, you know, I knew of you obviously from high school and had been following you over the years. And I knew you were a love and logic type person even before you started uh, Mission Peace. And, uh, you know, when I had... Uh, just a quick backstory that I think will kind of relate this back to the whole concept of organizational transformation, digital transformation, business transformation, all that stuff. But I've always been an organizational change consultant um, since I started my career in the you know late 90s out of grad school. And uh, about 10 years ago, I met my wife who had two young children and we got married. And so I had suddenly I had stepkids and I had never been a parent before. And so she and I both read Love and Logic because I needed to figure out what in the heck I was doing because I had no idea what I was doing. So I figured, well, I'll, I'll read a book. I'll read Love and Logic. And um, she had heard of it and we uh, both read it together. But not only has that helped me with parenting, but it's actually helped me tremendously in the corporate world being a consultant because so many of the principles in Love and Logic you can use on just other individuals, uh, executives and managers, frontline people, which we can get into maybe a little bit more uh, as we talk here. But I think the love and logic principles, it, it, if I'm correct, it didn't start, it, it was intended for a parenting sort of uh, philosophy, right? Like how to, how to parent and raise better kids. Yes. Uh, way back in the 1970s, uh, Jim, Jim Faye started it. And, and that was exactly the idea is, is give parents tools to empower their kids to become better decision makers. So no surprise that these same principles are great tools in the hands of a consultant 
be more of a consultant uh, than a helicopter who's rescuing or a drill sergeant who's always barking orders. Uh, I worked closely with them for about about a dozen years and got to travel around speak with, with Jim Fay and uh, Dr. Charles Fay, his son, who, uh, who now runs the company. They did downsize quite a bit over COVID, uh, sadly, because a lot of live presentations and a lot of business in schools and schools quickly had to pivot to, uh, to other priorities during COVID, but still a wonderful uh, organization, wonderful information. And I'm always uh, pleased that I get to continue to share their message, which is essentially, it's based on really good principles just with human beings. Uh, things like preserving the dignity of another human being, shared thinking, shared control, and uh, empathy. I mean, that's basically what Love and Logic is all about. It's not just a way to get your kid to, to eat their vegetables. These are really sound uh, principles within human psychology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, uh, you talk about how it helps people, kids, I mean, it was designed for kids, but it, it also applies to people in general. It helped them make better decisions. And, you know, you, I think you were sort of implying this a moment ago, but, uh, you know, corporations and organizations in general are notorious for making some really bad decisions, you know, as, as individuals and as groups. And that's the thing that really struck me is that love and logic is a great framework to sort of create a certain amount of accountability and also an understanding of consequences for organizations. You know, every organization and leader we deal with, they have some sort of vision, easy answer, you know, an easy answer with no consequences and no downside risk. And, it's totally unrealistic. So what we do is try to frame it differently and say, well, you, no matter what decision you make, there's a risk. There's going to be something you don't like about it. So let's pick one. And here's the pros and cons of each. And here's what we think, but you decide whatever you want. You're the, you're the client. I mean, that's, I'm oversimplifying, but that's the, the, the way it's affected me as a consultant. But what, tell me what, you know, what have you seen or how have you seen it used in, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about parenting, but focusing more on organizationally. How have you seen some of those principles used successfully in organizations you've consulted with or to? Yes, if I'm a boss, I want to raise, you know, just like a parent, I don't just want to raise an obedient kid. I want to raise a good decision maker, right? So if I'm a boss, I want to have a, I want to have a team of good decision makers, not just necessarily people who who do what they're told without thinking critically or without understanding the why. Uh, I was a why kid growing up. I remember asking my parents the rationale, the why behind just about everything. And they usually had a good answer. And I was never a fan of because I said so. And so the same thing for a boss. Uh, if your answer is just because I'm the boss versus I have a really good reason behind this, there's good thinking and planning behind this decision. And I want that to spread all the way down to, you know, the, the lowest person on my org chart. I want good thinkers and decision makers and responsible people. So, yeah, the parallels are are amazing because the very things I want out of uh, kids I might be raising using these love and logic principles. That's exactly what I want on my team. I, I want good thinkers, good decision makers and people who take responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in. uh especially in complex decisions, you know, that aren't, that aren't easy. You know, you, you want them to think through the critically think through all, all the nuances of those decisions. I guess I want them to eat their vegetables too, just for their own, for their own good and stuff. Yeah. I mean, if that's an unintended um, secondary benefit, that's not a, that's not a terrible thing either. 
yeah, it probably helps our, our bottom line and our, our, you know, company health plan or whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Jed Hafer. We're talking about organizational dynamics, leadership, all kinds of stuff related to transformation. Let's get right back to the interview. You, you talked about emotional intelligence uh, a moment ago or a few minutes ago. What, um, when it comes to emotional intelligence, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that leaders within organizations typically face when it comes to emotional intelligence? I think it's the balance. Uh, it's very difficult to balance the traits of a good leader because they can be seemingly conflicting. Uh, again, same as uh, in, in, in parenting, we talk about really, you're, you're just a leader. You know, I want to be, be kind, but I want to be strong, predicting one another. Uh, a leader has to balance things like rapport and respect, and one shouldn't be sacrificed for the other. Things like confidence versus the, because I'm the leader, because I said so. That tends to, I think that's probably the biggest one that gets leaders in trouble is we all have an ego and we, if, if we're not careful, we can surround ourselves only with people that, that feed that ego and tell us we're right versus the idea of I'm going to have this quick mindset as a leader and I'm, I'm going to embrace feedback. Uh, we always say feedback is our friend. Uh, good feedback, especially coming from a caring source that's aligned with my goals that's our that's our best friend. But some leaders, you've probably seen this, they, they get kind of me syndrome and they get to a place where their voice is the only voice that matters. And unfortunately, we miss out as leaders on a lot of really good perspective and a lot of good feedback if people don't feel free to share differing ideas. And this goes back to mission peace too. Uh, there are people that just kind of bullying each other on the internet. You're not allowed to disagree with me. You're not allowed to have a different opinion. It's not just that you have a different opinion. If you disagree, it's because you're a bad person. And I'd actually like to see us all get a little bit more uh, thick skinned in the sense of it's okay if we disagree. It's actually necessary. Uh, you know, differing views on an, on an issue. It's really important to get to the best information we have to have these different perspectives. In my very first podcast, I have a podcast too, it's called Cooler Heads. And the whole premise is helping people get along better. But I mentioned the Wright brothers. Uh, the Wright brothers, you know, figured out how to get us up in the air. They disagreed a lot. They didn't wake up every day on the same page as far as how to, how to fly. 
and they would really spar and go at each other, but they kept the relationship positive. They obviously cared about each other and they cared about their goal. So uh, we shouldn't be afraid of disagreement, especially as a leader. I think that insecure, no one's allowed to contradict me. Uh, that's that's probably the most paralyzing weakness in terms of emotional intelligence that I see in, in some leaders, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good reminder, especially, you know, a larger, more complex organization with more diverse people. You're just going to get inherently different opinions and different philosophies, which uh, shouldn't be considered a bad thing. I mean, that's what makes strong teams is, is that that diversity. In yeah, thinking. let's not fear that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great point. Um, and and even just tying it, you know, you're talking about the. Uh, you know, not being afraid to look at counterpoints and understand different points of view relating it to our industry and what we do. One thing that we notice in our uh, industry of digital transformation is that you have software companies and software vendors and consultants that all sort of think the same and they have these same flawed implementation approaches that have really caused a lot of failures in the industry. And a lot of it's because it's sort of like a group think, not thinking outside the box sort of a mentality where we're not going to go in and implement new technology, but we're not thinking about the human side of change. We're not thinking about process improvements and some of the non-technology aspects. They're just, you know, they're just so myopically focused on technology and we're not necessarily always open to those ideas of, hey, maybe there's a reason all these failures are happening. Maybe it's because we're doing something wrong. We should be open to other ideas and alternates to what we've been fed for the last several decades in, from the technology industry. So I think that's uh, what you just said resonates it, maybe in a, slight, in a slightly different way than what you intended, but it resonates really well. Uh, in our industry and in my experience as well. One of the first uh, kind of tech side companies that I got to consult with were some video game guys. And they obviously, whenever they create a new game, they try to break it. They try to find the, the flaws and the bugs. And so this idea, once they got it, it resonated with them. Oh, okay. If we have an idea, we need to try to break it just like we would a new game. We need to find the flaws. We need to almost, I think when you're at your height as a leader, you can already anticipate the yeah, buts and the counterpoints and the why this won't work. And some of the uh, resistance that you might get when you're trying to implement something. And we, again, we shouldn't approach that from a place of fear. We should, we should embrace it and say, let's, let's get, all this on the table and may the best ideas win. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in uh, today's ever changing world, you know, it's changing faster and faster and you need, um, you know, you need that diversity of thinking to make sure you, you're addressing your own blind spots as a leader or as a, as a peer team member. I've learned that from watching you a little bit that uh, something comes along or something changes and you know, should we just jump on this bandwagon because everyone's doing it or is it really better? All right. So that clip just really just scratches the surface of much of the stuff we, we cover in that interview with Jed Hafer, who's number two on our list of the top 10 interviews on transformation ground control during summer 2021. We cover a lot more than what we just discussed there. We get into a lot of really cool different nooks and crannies of organizational behavior and organizational psychology, leadership, communication, conflict resolution, all that sort of stuff. We covered a ton of stuff in, in less than an hour. So I encourage you to go check out that full interview, which you can find back in episode number 33 of Transformation Ground Control. And again, Jed Hafer, number two on our list. 
which means we only have one left. And this one is actually one of the, it's probably the oldest interview, the one that went back the furthest as far as uh, the early, early part of summer. Uh, actually, back in May, we had this guest on the show and it was a resounding success in terms of uh, feedback we got on the discussion, uh, the number of views we got. Um, I enjoyed the conversation. We covered a lot of ground. We're going to have her on the show and she has something to do with supply chain. That's all I'll tell you for now. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the number one interview uh, in our top 10 of the top 10 interviews of summer 2021. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, and it is time. It's, it's time for our number one on our top 10 list of the best interviews of summer 2021 on our show. And this was really hard, actually. It was hard to put together this entire list, to be honest. There's a lot of really good, um, a lot of good guests that didn't make the cut. And in fact, we'll probably find a way to do a best of part two or a way to bring in some of the other guests because we just had so many good guests. Many episodes have two or three guests every in any given week. So you can imagine over the course of a, a four-month period, you're going to have a lot of really good guests to choose from. And uh, first of all, people aren't on the show unless I think they're worthy of making our top 10. So it was very difficult to not include everyone in our top 10. Uh, but as far as the number one, I don't want to say it was easy to pick the number one, but as far as just purely basing it on feedback from the audience, uh, number of views, the engagement, the comments, the likes in the video, um, all that stuff points to a, to a clear number one, in my opinion. And this was one where we talk about supply chain management, supply chain transformation. And we did this back in May, 2021, this conversation. And really we were trying to talk about and trying to navigate this whole world of supply chain management today. Um, and the reason I wanted to have a, another supply chain type of focused guest on the show is because supply chains are, uh, supply chain management is just such a hot thing right now, given this post COVID world we're living in and all the supply chain breakdowns and bottlenecks and, uh, raw material shortages that organizations are experiencing throughout the globe, supply chain management is top of mind for a lot of organizations. And that could be part of why this guest in this topic did so well on the podcast. And we'll certainly need to find more uh, supply chain related content to incorporate into our show for sure. And it, who knows, maybe it'll be the same guest coming back again. So, um, but before we get uh, too far ahead of ourselves, let's talk about number one, number one on our list of the top 10 interviews of summer 2021 was with Amy Cooper from a company called Kraft. And Kraft is a technology company that produces uh, supply chain management related software, but not supply chain management in the traditional sense. And she's gonna explain what it is and what it does here in this clip. She explains it in a lot more detail uh, in the full interview. But this is from episode number 18, and it's Amy Cooper from Kraft. 
and we are at number one on our list of the top 10 interviews of summer 2021. Tell us a little bit about Craft. Mm-hmm. What, what is the solution? What does it do? How does it fit into supply chain management? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at, the, at the simplest level, so Craft is an ener- enterprise intelligence company. And what we're doing is aggregating both traditional and alternative data sources. And from a supply chain perspective, what, is, what does that mean? We're helping our customers build a resilient supply chain and use leading indicators of risk to proactively mitigate it. So traditionally, risk has been something that um, customer, you know, there was very siloed data sources. And I know we'll get into this a little bit more down the road, but um, Crafts data is allowing our customers to really um, look at alternative data points that are leading indicators of, of things going on and really helping them excel at all stages of the supplier life cycle, whether that be discovery, evaluation, or ongoing monitoring. Um, and so, um, you know, so we are working with um, global organizations, a, a large chunk of the Fortune 500, um, the Department of Defense, we have clients all over the world, um, and we're really driving real results from um you know, leveraging best-in-class data and technology to make better decisions and then to reduce the time to that decision. Right. Great. Yeah, yeah. that's a very timely, it seems like a very timely product. You guys are riding an interesting wave right now where that, that seems to be much needed in the space. You know, it's funny you say that. So when the company was founded six years ago, um, it's kind of a funny story. So our, uh, our CEO and founder was working in VC at the time. And he had, I think the number is something like 12 or 14 different tabs open on his computer researching a business. And he had this light bulb moment. He was like, this is madness. Like why in this day and age with the technology the way it is and with um, with data the way it is, why can I not just go to one place and get everything at once? And so that was kind of the light bulb of like, I'm going to build kind of like a Zillow of business information and everything in one place. And so we set out to build this company and, um, you know, so he, they build this intelligence platform capable of, you know, gathering vast amounts of diverse data from different sources and bringing it into one easy to use interface. And at that time, they didn't quite know where it was going to fit, right? It could go to sales and marketing. It could go to credit and finance. It could go to market intelligence. It could go to mergers and acquisitions. There's a lot of different places within an organization this data can fit. And very quickly, this supply chain use case started percolating up because of all of the disruptions that were happening and and the need to better understand your suppliers. And so um, about two years ago, the Department of Defense came to Kraft and said, we've been using your data. Um, Now we want to integrate it into our systems. And so that was kind of the um, the launch point from which we've said, okay, we're going to take this time right now because supply chain is so critical um, and th- we have something that no one else is doing to support our cu- these customers within supply chain. Um, we're we're going to focus on that. So um, our you know our data team who's sourcing new da- new data partners, our product team who's continuing to evolve the product based on customer feedback. We're really focused on supply chain. Although there are we do have many customers that use us for market intelligence or sales and marketing or merger you know M and A activity research and stuff like that. 
That's great. So I guess, you know, in this experience you have leading up to and including your, your time here at Kraft and what you're seeing in the market, what are some of the, um, what are some of the ways that you've seen global supply chains evolve in, in more recent years? That's a great question. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> so I will preface the answer to that um, and say a lot of this, I think, has been percolating for some time. Um, there were indicators that these things were going to be changing. And then I think once COVID hit, it turned these like little brush fires into a raging wildfire. And it really forced customers to, to start to reevaluate how they're going to manage their supply chain. Um, I think one of the biggest changes over the last few years um, is supply chain now has a seat at the table with the CEO. And I think for a long time, supply chain was just there. The business knew it was important. It was the foundation, but it got products from A to B and it manufactured and things were sold and stored, but it was working and they were making money and there wasn't a huge need to include the supply chain teams in the strategy sessions and the, the long-term planning. And so now that's changed. I think um, in the past 18 months, businesses have really started to see how critical the supply chain is um, and understand what supply chain risk means. Um, and so now um, the supply chain and procurement executives are being brought to the table to really dig into the business and make a plan for how do we handle this down the road? What are we going to do next time something like this happens? Yeah. So that's the first. Um, I think the second way there's been a big shift is um, in this in the sense of um, for a long time, supply chains had a, um, a process and a strategy that was very lean and it was based on demand forecasts and they bought materials based on what they were going to produce and the warehousing space was only what they were going to need. Um, and they only produced enough product for what was the, for the consumer demand. And um, it was, the margins were very, very thin and it was good, or excuse me, margins were big and, um, you know, and everything worked and there wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of room for error. Um, and so what COVID has exposed really is that, yes, while there can be great planning, great demand and forecasting, and, and you, can, you can try and manage it, um, you really need to have a backup plan. And you need to understand, you need to be watching your suppliers. You need to know um, what's changing, when it changes, right? You can't find out a month later. You need to know the day of or the next day that something big has happened. Um, you need to be prepared and have a contingency plan. So, um, you know, it's funny, one of the clients that we're speaking to is a, a, a their big pharma company and they have, um, they've made the decision that they're not willing to take the risk. And so they're actually, um, they're stocking three years of inventory and three years of materials because they don't want to risk in not being able to get something they need to make one of their um, critical products. Um, another aerospace and defense client of ours has decided they're going to start. Um, they've, they've implemented a new policy where they have all of their um, key suppliers within 12, 12 hours of their manufacturing sites. 
because they don't want to risk not being able to get the product. And so I think businesses now are willing to spend a little bit more money for that resiliency to be able to have that plan in place so that um, so that they're not caught in a situation like we've seen with the, you know, with the personal equipment and some of the other things we've seen, toilet paper, all of these things, when the, when the, when the forecast doesn't line up, companies are being caught. And so they're, they're being smarter and they're spending some more money to be able to manage that. Um, I think, you know, there, I, you know, I have to mention diversity and sustainability as a huge, huge initiative right now. Every single customer we are talking to has massive diversity and sustainability goals. Um, and it's kind of two prong. It's, it's for themselves as a company to be um, a, um, an inclusive and valuable, you know, member of the business community and to be able to create those um, in inclusive places for their own employees. Um, but also within the supply chain perspective, they are asking their suppliers to um, report these things. They have initiatives where they want to spend money with diverse suppliers. I know during COVID, one of our customers um, was actually supporting some of their small diverse suppliers because they, they knew that they were not going to be able to make it through the pandemic without the help of these large organizations. Um, so diversity and sustainability is is huge right now um, as a cybersecurity. I mean, we all saw the news this week about Colonial Pipeline, um, you know, tracking cybersecurity um, of yourself and your suppliers is something um, that can't be ignored anymore. Um, we've been, you know, there's been kind of whispers about it in the news for the past few years of like, you know, our, the U.S.'s cyber infrastructure is, it, it, you know, is at risk, and we have to be careful. And but now, um, these cyber criminals are targeting the supply chain. I think attacks were up 42% in Q1 of this year, so it's it's not going away, um, and it's the, the attacks are just getting more complex. So really, um, understanding where the vulnerable those vulnerabilities lie within your supply base. Um, and, and tracking that and understanding it and having a contingency plan if something happens, um, like we saw this week. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting how when supply chain management really started to take off or get traction, like in the 90s, when, when global supply chain started to proliferate, when you start talking about outsourcing and, and you know, uh, contract manufacturing in other parts of the world and whatnot, at least for, for U.S. based companies. Uh, it seemed like a lot of the focus was on cost. You know, how do we drive mm -hmm. cost efficiencies and drive down our total, mm -hmm. the, the cost of our supply chain? But now you have so much more to worry right. about. It's not just cost. You've got, you know, you mentioned yeah. the reliability of your supply chain, the sustainability, the diversity, all that stuff now. Mm -hmm. it, you have to kind of balance and prioritize, you know, what's most mm -hmm. important to you as an organization. And that's, you bring up a great point because really what it comes down to is, um, as an organization building out um, what are your priorities and what is your risk threshold, right? Um, different organizations, some might just say, you know what, we're gonna continue with the, the lean strategy and if we get hit, we get hit. Um, we're seeing a lot of customers adjust that strategy to be a little bit more resilient. Um, but the key is really just for each organization to figure out 
what that threshold is for them. And then let's put a plan in place to make sure we're giving you the data that you need to be able to execute on that plan and make sure that we're, we're keeping you up to date on things changing there so that you're not caught, um, caught off guard and you're able to be proactive um, and make adjustments and pivot before the disruption occurs. Yeah, yeah, and, and anticipating what could disrupt the, the supply chain. And what are some examples? I, I know, you know, Kraft as a company and the, and the solution itself really, you know, part of what it does from what I understand is, is track and predict where there could be problems, whether it's weather related or geopolitical, or I don't know if it could predict pandemics or not, or what sort of impact yeah. a pandemic would <laughs> predict that. But what, right. how does that work or how does the solution um, in general help help do, accomplish some of those things and some of those balancing that uh, a lot of organizations are trying to do with their supply chains? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's three um, big differentiators with craft, right, versus what's out there in the marketplace. So the first is the depth and the accuracy of our data. So we are collecting over 350 data points on a company. Um, so everything from traditional sources like financials and um, firmographic information and their operations, what do they do? Um, you know, what do, what do they sell? What do they manufacture? But then we're bringing in um, a lot of additional data sources, things like cybersecurity scores, um, diversity certification data, um, human capital, employee sentiment, um, website visits, social media engagement, um, things like sustainability scores, um, data breaches, all of these things, because at the end of the day, what, what we're trying to do is give our customers um, a 360 degree holistic view of a company. And so then how does that help them manage their risk? There's a lot of these different alternative sources that traditionally haven't been leveraged as an indicator of risk, but we know they are. So for instance, if within an organization, if there's consistent turnover at the executive levels, that's an indicator that there's something going on. Um, if you're evaluating um, an, you know, an up and coming startup or a, a new smaller business that you think is really taking off and you're about, you, you think you're, you want to do business with them, if you look at their website visits, the traffic should be trending higher. If they're doing really well and they're doing what they're saying they're, they, they're doing, that, that trend line should be going up. If it's not, are they really gaining that much traction in the marketplace? Um, things around, you know, the cybersecurity scores we have, if someone has a score of an F, they have a 7.7 X, uh, you know, 7.7 X times, um, uh, um, excuse me, uh, probability of a data breach, right? So when we're talking about data breaches, you want to, you want to understand within my supply chain, particularly in businesses where there's sensitive consumer data, credit cards, social security numbers, you want to make sure that your suppliers are secure because if they're breached, it can then flow to you depending on how that that attack has been orchestrated. And so well, the tool um, that, you know, the, the craft offering is really bringing all of these data points together in one place. And then we highlight where we see potential risk on a dashboard, whether it's by um, cybersecurity or ESG or, or, you know, those things can be customized depending on the client. But um, so we're highlighting where we see where we see risk. Um, and then we're giving real time alerts 
to changes within the data on companies that are that our customers have chosen to track. And so um, through those two components and then having it all in one place where the entire organization is able to look at that same same data set, right? So uh, what we hear from a lot of customers is they just have this data and platform fatigue. They're sick of logging into 20 different systems to get information and then it's inconsistent information. And then there's different people pulling the information and it's just this inefficient mess of data. And then no one really has the answers they're looking for. So what we're, what we're doing at Craft is we're consolidating everything into one place and um, giving our customers the information that they need to make these decisions around risk um, and then reducing their, their time to a decision and time to action. Mm. Yeah, it's, that's super interesting because I think most of the time when you analyze a supply chain historically, and when I say we, I mean, I, I, my team, other consultants in, in the space, you know, when we've analyzed supply chains, typically you're looking at the flow of goods, you're looking at the cost structure, you know, you're looking at lead times and things like that. Those, and that's all important stuff, but you're, you're sort of getting into the guts of the organization and you're, you're sort of peeling back the onion to get to the root cause of what could cause risk, you know, with financial instability or, marketplace, you know, market share loss or uh, unhappy employees. All right. Well, it was hard to find just the highlights of that interview because there were so many good ones, but hopefully that gives you a taste of some of the things we talk about in that interview with Amy Cooper from Kraft, who lands at number one on our list of the top 10 interviews of summer 2021 on our Transformation Ground Control podcast. Uh, and again, if you want to watch that entire interview, which was fairly extensive, it was one of the longer interviews we had on the show. Um, you can go back to episode number 18 back in May of 2021 when we put that episode out. So that is our top 10. Thanks for watching today. Um, be sure to check us out every Wednesday. We'll be back with new content, new interviews. Uh, Kyler Cheatham will be back from holiday, I assume, unless she decides to stay longer for whatever reason. Uh, but she'll be back uh, next week to co-host another uh, new episode of Transformation Ground Control but in the meantime, be sure to check us out on YouTube, subscribe to us there, and subscribe to us on the audio podcast platforms too, if that's where you prefer to listen or if that's where you are listening. We'd love to have you as a, as a subscriber. And also be sure to check us out on social media. You can find us uh, not only on YouTube, not just the podcast, but other great content we put out every day, literally every day we put out new content um, between myself and Third Stage Consulting out on YouTube, as well as on Instagram, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, TikTok. We're on all the major social media platforms and we're putting out daily content for you. So be sure to check us out, subscribe to us, follow us. Um, we'd love to engage with you on social media and provide uh, whatever knowledge and best practices we can and certainly get your feedback as well. So hope you found this top 10 list helpful. Uh, we will probably do more of them in the future uh, based on your feedback here, depending on uh, what your feedback is. Uh, but hope you have a great week in the meantime, and we will see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. 